so I, I started bow making and I started looking at multiple time periods, not just one time period. And I realized then that archery is different everywhere. Bow making is different everywhere. You know, it's it's not even the same type of doors that you're opening. Within each bow, it's a whole journey that tells you about different aspects of the culture that made that bow within the environment that they sat in. His uh, company had to take a machine gun turret and he took out the sentry with his longbow. So they didn't, they, the guys in the turret didn't hear them coming. So. Yeah. This concentration is like a thing that, that's off-putting. So these mm. extreme insults at the archer as they're... So the guy is like drawing back and the guys are just like ah, da, 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 with bells and they're screaming at him and then the arrow goes and everything's silent and it goes... And they go, ah, that was pretty good. And welcome to Saga Briefs, where we look at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And you've stumbled into an episode of our companion series, The Saga Thing. Yeah, instead of our usual foray into the sagas of the Icelanders, these uh, these saga briefs allow us to choose a topic from the sagas that needs to be examined in a little more depth than we can give it in our regular episodes. Yes, and sometimes that's just us talking about something we want to spend more time on, like the stories that inform the History Channel show Vikings. And sometimes we want to just cover something that's outside our areas of study. When that happens, Andy and I take a back seat, let some real experts man the rudder. Real experts? That, that kind of implies we're not experts. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I know some stuff. Well, sometimes I wonder. Uh, but <laughs> well, as you'll so. hear in today's interview, some dedicated people out there know so much about their subject that it can be both exciting and humbling for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those times. I mean, we normally like to keep our interviews under an hour, but there was just too much good material here to cut down. Right. Uh, what you're about to hear Well, it's is, less than one hour per interviewee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> what you're about to hear is a lively conversation with two of the world's foremost experts in archery and historical bow making. Right. So Patricia Gonzalez is the founder and head instructor of Lycopus Archery in Vancouver, where she teaches the theories, styles, and techniques of all forms of archery. Uh, viewers of the television shows Arrow or The Flash may not have seen her, but they'll be familiar with her work as the archery consultant for those shows. That means that if you've seen an Arrow shot or marveled at the style of shooting on either show, you're already a fan of her work. Yes, and we were also fortunate to have Stephen Fox participate in the conversation. Mm. Stephen studied the fascinating field of experimental archaeology and ancient technologies at University College Dublin, where he specialized <laughs> in Viking archery. Such an awesome title. It is, right? And and like Patricia, he's traveled the world in pursuit of a deeper understanding of archery and bow making. Stephen currently works with Patricia as an archery technician on Arrow and in a variety of functions at Lycopus Archery. Right. So you'll be hearing about their expertise and their work in the interview. But at the outset, we should mention for anyone who's interested that Lycopus is a school for people who want to learn about archery as it's been practiced over the history of the world. Yeah, and that's a big statement. But as you'll hear, it's warranted. If you're interested in learning more about Lacopus Archery, or maybe taking a few classes, if you find yourself in the Vancouver area, you can find everything on their website, www.lycopus.com. That's uh, L-Y-K-O-P-I-S.com. Yes, and I'll add links to Lycopus as well as Patricia and Steven's social media in the show notes. Excellent. Yes. If you've seen any of the videos that Andy's been posting this past week, you'll know that Patricia and Steven do some impressive work. And there's plenty more to discover in the links you'll find in the show notes. Yes, and all I want to do right now, John, is kind of just pack my bag and head to Vancouver. I want to make my own bow, 
I want to hang out with Patricia and Stephen full time. Of course you do. Yeah. That's not where you're packing your bags for right now, though. No. Uh, this is a great conversation. Uh, and you may have noticed when you downloaded that it's a long one as well. But mm-hmm. uh, we think you'll agree that time spent learning from Patricia and Stephen is time very well spent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we hope you enjoy your time spent with them during this fun and informative interview. Thanks to Patricia and Stephen for talking with us. Uh, Andy and I, as I hinted a minute ago, are heading off to a conference in Reykjavik. Mm-hmm. If you're in Reykjavik during the 12th to the 18th of this month, uh, that's August of 2018, for those of you listening in the distant future, uh, come by and say hi. Feel free to go to Reykjavik anytime, but we won't be there. Uh, after that, we'll be back in, what, early September, most likely, with our next saga, which is going to be Floamana Saga. Floamana Saga. Yes, and we'll be up to all sorts of shenanigans in Iceland, including putting together some extra content for the podcast. And if yes. everything goes well, we might even post it from the Airbnb that we're staying at. Oh, right. So they might hear from us again before September. It's possible, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> all right. Enjoy the show, everyone. And as always, thanks for listening. with Patricia Gonzalez and Stephen Fox, uh, and we're here to talk about archery. Archery has been a tool of humans since the era of cave paintings. Along with the spear, bows are the earliest weapons depicted in art. The bow has been a weapon of continental conquest and a tool of simple hunter communities. It's a deeply simple machine and a deceptively advanced piece of weaponry, and it's been the weapon of choice for outlaws and heroes from Artemis to on Bowbender, from Robin Hood to Katniss Everdeen. Uh, There's an old expression that too many speak in ignorance of the life of the bow-wielding outlaw. Many speak of Robin Hood who never drew his bow. And we're fortunate to speak today with two people who have, if not actually drawn Robin Hood's bow, created the closest thing to it as consultants on the TV program Arrow. And between them, they've drawn every other kind of bow there is. So to start, we'd like to have you guys just introduce yourselves. Um, My name is Patricia Gonzalez, and I am an independent archery researcher, and I spent around 30-some-odd years researching archery, and in the last five or six years now, just traveling through Europe and Asia and researching archery and studying it from its beginnings to up until mostly to modern modern techniques and and equipment. That's how I met Stephen. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm an archaeologist from from Dublin, and I started to specialize in experimental archaeology, and uh, that brought me through the through the route of bow making mm-hmm. and looking at prehistoric archery through the Bronze Age arch- uh, archery, and then um, uh, what I did my thesis on, which was Viking Age archery in in, in Ireland and Europe. Excellent. It's, thank you both for being here. Yes, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Stephen, it's is experimental while. archery just to, so that our listeners understand? Obviously, John and I know. But experimental archery, so can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, so experimental archaeology is uh, its one of the many tools that archaeologists use to investigate the past. Mm-hmm. So you have excavation, you have LIDAR, you have GIS, you have geophys, you also have experimental archaeology. So after mm-hmm. I got sort of basic training at UCD, um, yeah, we, we started, uh, I started learning ancient skills, making stone tools, lighting fires. Um, and then I started learning about... Uh, just how to make the tools and technologies of the time. Um, what it gives us is an aspect of the past that you can't 
normally see mm-hmm. through the display case of a museum. It's something you can't see just by looking at an object or, 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 or comparing two objects by their type. You know, when you pick up a tool and you start working the wood, you start realizing a whole world of different um, techniques and, and um, problem-solving aspects to bow making that, yeah. that you never would have even thought existed. And it, and it leads to more questions. It opens more doors. So you start with uh, the archaeological knowledge, and then from there, you're sort of taking the materials that you know were being used, and then you're sort of experimenting to figure out the most effective way to use those tools? Mm-hmm. So um, whether a bow is 10,000 years old or 1,000 years old, you start in the museum. Mm-hmm. You're looking at um, you're looking at tool marks, you're looking at dimensions, you're looking at you know, what type of wood is being used. Um, and then you're looking at what, what type of uh, tools would have been used also um, mm-hmm. in, in that time. Um, and then you're just going out into the field. You're trying to recreate the conditions. You're trying to recreate materials. And uh, yeah, you just put extra wood in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It happens. Just out of curiosity, you know, what role do texts play in this the literature in trying to recreate these, these artifacts or bows specifically? Well, texts rarely tell us anything at all about mm-hmm. that's what my students what, tell us <laughs> yeah what a bow was made of right the, i think the only the only text that ever really went into detail about how a bow was was made was in the iliad mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the bow of a very famous bow maker was described during the siege of troy and he goes down to even you know gluing layers of horn together you know it's a very mm-hmm. very accurate description of what type of bow would have been used uh, around the time the iliad was written yeah, we don't we don't get any descriptions of uh, how bows are made in like a a literature sort of sense other than something that's more on an academic level like Asher's, you know, archery manual of the time. Mm-hmm. So right. that was, that's Elizabethan times. So there there are some Turkish manuals that predate that, but again, it's a manual. It's not really a, a, a literature that explains. There's some Indian myths uh, before Christ, but they don't really go into as much detail no, as the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of Europe, I think the very first time we see like Viking uh, texts don't even say what woods they're using. We know from archaeological evidence the most common wood to use is yew, and then the second most common is elm. But mm-hmm. no one, no, nowhere does it say somebody drew a, a yew bow. The first time I think they even think about discussing what materials we're using, what tools should be used, was around the time laws are written, and you mm-hmm. have guilds who say a bow should be made a certain way, and that's that's how we that's how we know, for example, right. um, uh, what Mary Rose bows would have been made of uh, before we ever found them. It often feels when I'm reading a medieval text like the uh, the author's interest is that of a uh, what I'll call a layperson. Uh, they don't actually know a tremendous amount about bow making or archery. And so their interest in is limited to this was a really powerful bow. This was a less strong bow that, you know, sort of the way I would discuss a car. I know some cars can go fast. And some cars don't go as fast. That's right. But don't ask me anything more technical than that. It feels like when they're writing about it, they're writing about it from the knowledge of someone who is not really familiar with bows beyond just their things that shoot arrows. Or, or even, yeah, to a sense, we still have that going on. To a sense, that's that's what my job is, and that's what our job is, is mm-hmm. that people are still doing that kind of thing. They sort of have <laughs> a, a preconceived notion of what archery is, and that much is evident all the way back through history, you know, through artwork and stuff like that. Well, I think the bow looks like this, so yeah. I'm going to paint it like this or describe it like that. And the next person, that's going to be their memory in their mind, which mm-hmm. is why we run into people like Ridley Scott. So, um, 
You know, it's just uh, <laughs> subtle jab. That was subtle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, right, we'll be cutting all that out. Don't worry. Yeah, we, we do totally. I'm... We do totally get into that point. You're very right, where it's just like a bow bends like this, or it just it was a big bow. It was a strong bow. It was a long bow. It was. Yeah. This it shot bow. really far. It, um, it mm. shot really far. Yeah, it shot. It shot really far. Uh, I think in the sagas we only have. Um, I, I have to sort of look at my notes really quick. But somebody shoots their brother with what they describe as a horn bow or a horny bow. It's tra- when it translates, they translate it into horny bow instead of horn bow. <laughs> so. While archery has lots of sexual innuendo, I don't think that that's what they <laughs> were going for. So when we talk about the horn bow, it often means like the hun the hun bow. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, we're going to get into some specifics of, of bows and um, what's right and what's wrong in both literature and, and film. But before we do that, um, I wanted to ask you guys, you, you both have managed to make a living out of your passion. So can you tell us a little bit about how both of you got into archery and then why you guys love it so much? Do you want to go first? I was very young and um, when I got started in archery, um, I was one of the, what I consider a lucky child. My father raised me on a boat, so I didn't have a lot of media influence. Mm-hmm. There was not, there was no television, um, you know, magazines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, didn't, it was whatever he brought me to read or we would always sort of frequent antique bookstores and stuff like that. So he gave me a copy of Robin Hood and uh, it turned into the sort of proverbial, may I have a bow dad, may I have a bow dad. And yeah. <laughs> this is back in the time of the Sears catalog having bows and arrows in it. Uh-huh. Right? Mm-hmm. This was still a thing. Um, shut up. <laughs> and, um, dad always used to joke that, that it was a Sears catalog. I always used to joke that <laughs> oh. he didn't, give me uh, uh, the three musketeers first because it would have been a sword. So mm. I just became super fascinated with archery and the whole concept of Robin Hood and uh, the robbing from the uh, good and the, and the church and, and giving to the poor. And that sort of uh, expanded as I got older and I began to see the more social political aspect of, of Robin Hood yeah. and what, how much he really did hate the church and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and, 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 the fact that the whole myth and the ballads changed so very much from the 10th century up until Elizabethan times and, and later and on when with the romantic part was added to it and all that kind of stuff. So just the whole socioeconomic aspect of Robin Hood and the ties to archery. Yeah. And you find that tied to archery throughout literature, throughout history. It's mm-hmm. always sort of the hero with the bow and arrow um, yeah. or you're often there's, it often goes the other way where it's outlawed and it's bad and it's wrong and it's seen as a coward's weapon. So that's sort of what kept me fascinated. And again, because I lived on a boat, it was a new library or a new bookstore every few days. So I was lucky. Mm. I was lucky in that way. And I just kind of never stopped. And when I got older, I got involved with an archery club. Uh, I got shot in the ass by a student. And I, oh. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> I competed for a while and I really decided like that seemed to be the thing. And even to this day when people say, oh, you're an archer, do you do Olympics? Like, have you gone to the Olympics? And I was like, no, that's not really, there's a lot more to it than, mm-hmm. than just the competition side. Of it. In fact, the competition side of archery is probably like the Olympic style is probably the youngest form of archery we have yeah. out there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just fascinated me on, on all levels. And then, uh, I failed miserably physics in school and now I teach a course called the physics of archery <laughs> and the physics of human beings. So nice. yeah, just, uh, it, I don't think there's anywhere, um, that academically the arch or archery doesn't touch it. Like you said, it's some of the oldest artwork is, is archery related. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
math, physics, biology, all of it, it's all, it's all combined into this amazing yeah. world that we've had with us since we, you know, stood up and went, I'm hungry. <laughs> and that mastodon. I'm hungry, but I don't want to walk I'm over hungry, there. And that I'm thing's hungry. big and scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you're growing up on a boat and you get interested in archery. How do you practice twice? Because I would think you fire your arrows and now it's time to go swimming. <laughs> How long was the boat? Uh, actually, I could have, you know, in hindsight, when I thought about it, I've had this question before I thought about it. Um, I spent a lot of time alone on the boat and I thought, you know, I could have definitely shot from the from the, the, the main entrance to the boat, to the boat, mm -hmm. to the, to the V-berth. Mm -hmm. It was about 32 feet. I do it in my house. Um, oh. from one end of my house to the other sometimes. So, uh, most of the time when I did archery at that time, it was when I, we would, if we were moored somewhere for more than a week or so, you know, mm. it, again, it was archery was something that was still in cubs. It was still in scouts. It was still something you could go to your local wherever. And there was an outdoor indoor archery right. range. It was still very, very common. You know, I'm older than I look. So it was, um, it was easy. And dad kind of started to make sure that wherever we were, there was there was some sort of you know, like I said he would take me to a library if it wasn't there and and uh, he, I come from a military background so for him it was like well it's a it's a weapon that's not a gun and it can be for girls sure so, yeah oh jeez yeah. <laughs> how about you Stephen um, well for me uh, I when I left school I just I I had to go to college because I I didn't know what I wanted to do and I just I, but I knew I I knew I'd find out there and I discovered archaeology that was my first passion. Um, I loved excavating and I loved traveling and, um, along, oh, what is it? In the third year we were, we were given our first experimental archeology span project and we had to find something that hadn't been done before and build an entire project from scratch. Yeah. And it was around the time that I, I went to visit, um, uh, Bolzano, a, a, a city in North, North Italy, where I found the bow of Utsu the Iceman, you know, and I, mm. I was in this museum, it's full of just all kinds of treasures that just make archaeologists drool, yeah. but in the <laughs> middle of the room is this outstanding U bow, it's chipped little tiny tool marks all over, mm. you know, um, and I said, yeah, that, I'm going to make that, so I went home, I made the world's worst replica, <laughs> but it was, it was my first, it was my first one, and like I said before, like I had no idea how 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 much more there was to it than than what I thought when I just looked at it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then uh, I I then had to do a master's project. I moved, went on to do my master's, and uh, this is like twenty bows later. And um, you know, my my supervisor came in and, and he said, "Hey, you're stuck for a project." And I was like, "Yeah." And he said, "The Viking excavations in Dublin, you know, upturned a handful of Viking age bow fragments." And there's the one Ballandary bow as well. And he said, we could get you access to the Ballandary bow if you if you wanted to, you know, because all of the curators and professors know each other in, in Dublin. It's a, it's a small community. And um, I was introduced to the curator of the, uh, the, um, uh, of, uh, the National Museum of Ireland. And uh, he brought me in and, and I, got to ha I got to hold the Ballandary bow and examine it. And I, I did my whole project on that. That must um, have been so exciting. It was amazing. And, you know, I was, I'm trying to think back as to why I even got so into it. And I think I remember in one of our first few lectures, we were told, you know, archaeology is exciting, but good luck getting a job because, you know, it's, it's very difficult. It sounds familiar. I you tell you that in naval studies, too. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I decided to take it into my own hands then. And I said, if, if that's the case, then I have to have an extra skill that these other people around me don't mm. have. 
And so I, I started bow making and I started looking at multiple time periods, not just one time period. And I realized then that archery is different everywhere. Bow making is different everywhere. You know, it's it's not even the same type of doors that you're opening. Within each bow, it's a whole journey that tells you about different aspects of the culture that made that bow within the environments that they sat in. Hmm. And um, uh, I started photography as well. Like I started learning photography so as I could capture the places. I, I realized I was traveling to many more places yeah. because I had to go see these bows and I started a blog. Um, and then I got my first job. As soon as I finished college, I got a, I got a job offer at the Lofoder Viking Museum. Mm. And for two summers in a row, I, I was the bow maker there. I had, I think my workshop is still there, but there's no bow maker in it right now. Um, but I made my own workshop there and I built bows and arrows and I talked to thousands of tourists those summers from all over the world and each of them telling me about archery from their, their community. And it was in that, uh, it was during the first summer, I think, or the, no, the second summer was when I launched my blog. Patricia caught my blog and she said, would you like to come over for a workshop? teach Viking bow making to my class and I said absolutely I do <laughs> and uh, I went over I spent a month here and uh, got to know the workshop I got to know her, her colleagues I went to set yeah. you know with her mm-hmm. and uh, yeah that's, that's I, so I didn't I didn't so I didn't I didn't know I, my entry into it wasn't through archery it was true bow making mm-hmm. um, Patricia since since I started working here Patricia has taught me how to become a better archer you know uh-huh. Um, if you compare the picture of me shooting a bow in her workshop that we did compared to me shooting a bow now, is the, the, the difference is yeah, really the first time the first time I showed him how to shoot a composite like a horn <laughs> bow, he shot the um, the thermostat off the wall. <laughs> the, the arrow went like this and sort of threw the therm. It went into the target. In our, in, our, in, our, in our archery range, it's still mounted on the wall. There's a hole on either side of the thermostat. <laughs> I found Stephen because uh, I, I the two months that we have off from Arrow, I, I travel. I, I go to Europe and I travel and I and I make dreams that I'd like to live there. And um, <laughs> I went. I was in Copenhagen and uh, I had decided I was working in Finland and I had decided that I was just going to take a quick a quick jaunt down to France and back through Copenhagen because Copenhagen is mm. right. I love it. I love Europe for that. I'm just going to get on a ferry and a train and. Fuck off. <laughs> wake up, wake up in a new. Wake country. up in a new. So I went to Copenhagen yep. because they, the world's oldest bow is there, uh, and I found myself there for a couple extra days. So I took the train down through Roskilde to the uh, Viking Ship Museum, and that's where I found out information I didn't know about archery, which I really like to do. Uh, mm. Was that it was Vikings who brought archery or the longer style bow to Ireland, and then I was like, well. But it's off to Ireland for me. Let me find this Irish. I need to find an Irish. And, you know, I need to find someone in Ireland. Long, and all of a sudden, this guy shows up with his, like, nifty Lofoden dressed as a Viking making a bow. And I'm like, that guy. She typed Irish Viking bow. And I popped up because I learned that summer how to use hashtags properly. Isn't yeah. that great? <laughs> right. Google one hit. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I make sure that I'm the first thing possible. Considering <laughs> that how how easy it was to find Stephen uh, regarding Irish Viking or, or, or Viking archery and Irish Viking archery, as opposed to my friend in Finland, Marcus, which took me almost two years to find <laughs> him uh, regarding the Finn Ugric bow. So yeah, that was that was he did he doesn't fit Marcus. If you're listening, use hashtags. <laughs> Stop being so Swedish. Uh, <laughs> So what's the step from uh, studying historical archery, studying historical bow making to becoming consultants in the entertainment industry? 
The step was be a chef. Have, have your grade seven teacher tell you that archery is not a job. Destroy your dreams. Um, become a chef. Um, uh, do all the good, thing, good things that chefs do and, and end up in a retirement job in a high school where you can torture teenagers with, uh, by withholding and or giving food. And uh, then you get hit by a car. <laughs> Uh, huh. so I had a, I had a, a very bad vehicular collision. I was on my bicycle and it sort of left me unable to continue to be a chef. And all my friends were like, you should be archery. And I was just like, that's not a job. And <laughs> one of my friends turned to me and went F that teacher from however <laughs> long ago. And, um, I started an archery program at what is now the world's largest sword fighting school in being, uh, uh, it's a uh, home base in Vancouver. And then, um, a bunch of stunt guys came in one day and were like, we want a private lesson. We've booked a two-hour lesson with you, but we want to know everything you know about archery. And I was like, well, <laughs> two hours. <laughs> Try four. Uh-huh. Uh, so we got them in there, and I had no idea who they were. They and They just say. they didn't say. They kind of <laughs> said, oh, we just kind of want to add this to our stunt repertoire. But they were asking me about film archery, and as you saw my very subtle segue about Ridley Scott there, um, <laughs> that's sort of how I teach, you know, sort of like little 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 mm-hmm. things here and there. Yeah. Uh, so I had my say about film archery, especially concerning um, Mr. Renner and his portrayal of Hawkeye and, and, <laughs> and how he, he looks bad, not just because his form is bad, but because he, he himself personally finds the whole concept of being an archer as a superhero kind of dumb. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't come across. So... Uh, you know, I talked about Kate Blanchett and Robin Hood and how after she shot the flaming arrow in the medieval shift, uh, I don't remember the rest of that movie. And uh, <laughs> I went camping. I literally went camping for a weekend uh, teaching archery uh, at a medieval camp. Mm. And uh, I came back and my voice box was full and my mailbox was full, everything full. And just like, hey, uh, we want you to come for an interview for this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, they're like, we're making a Green Arrow TV show. You want a job? And I was like. Yes. yes, I like I jobs. So I like jobs. I like to. So I've been with the show. I've been with Arrow since the since the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, when we first started, we didn't really know what the outline of my job was, what it meant, and it sort of shifted over the past. Uh, we're in our sixth season now, so it sort of shifted over the past five and a half seasons. But part of my job is safety, and part of my job, like you can't really, you can kind of see behind. Those are all arrows for the show behind us. Mm-hmm. These are all stuff from the show. So, um, yeah, we make all the arrows for the show. That's kind of how it happened. I just, um, I, I don't know. My dad raised me one of those people when you put your mind to something, you you, you just do it. So I just did it, and then uh, I was able to branch out from medieval art school into my own school. And uh, mm-hmm. Arrow eats up most. I, I like Warner Brothers owns my soul, <laughs> pretty much. There's no room for Jesus here. No, well, Arrow's really, Arrow's really unique. They take the show. They always want to make sure that that the archery looks good and that the mm-hmm. the, the quality of the props. They're not props. They're real arrows. Yeah, right? they're, yeah. It's right. it, we it go to great good. lengths to, uh, and you know, we do the other shows too. So I, I'm uh, all the other superhero shows are whenever we do a crossover. So mm-hmm. that's part of the reason. Like it went from just being me to being me and someone else mm-hmm. because I just didn't. Uh, handle all of it. But so now, when it. you're working for the show, do you come, are you sort of working on creating camera ready stunts, or are you involved more with the technical side of making whatever stunt they come up with work? I more it's it's sort of it's more of the second one. Um, uh-huh. The guys I train the stunt guys on how to do archery, and and I took into account sort of what Jeremy Renner had said during Avengers. People were like, "Hey man, why did you suck at archery?" And he basically <laughs> said. Uh, 
I took a couple archery lessons and archery doesn't transfer on screen. And he's right because most of what they book when, again, this is back to the Olympic thing, when they book people to train actors, they book Olympians mm-hmm. because they think that that's numero uno for archery. I so see. Right. Katniss is a good example. They didn't get her an archery instructor. Miss Lawrence went out and got her own archery instructor uh, in the form of Katuna Larig, who is an uh, American Olympian. And she taught her Olympic style archery. Katniss is a hunter. So if you stand in the forest and um, Andy's a deer and I lift my bow up and I mm-hmm. do this and then I reach and I Andy's <laughs> gone, right? Like yeah. you're, you're like, ah, you're out of here. So I took that into account when I was training Stephen, mm-hmm. uh, Amel is the star, and then and subsequently other archers. You know, like where is this archer coming from? What kind of bow do they have? And I teach the guys as much movements. They don't actually ever shoot real arrows. We try fire the bows, especially for sure. the stunt training. And we talk about how to run and jump with the bow. And because if you reach for the arrow at the wrong time through a jump, you throw yourself off. You know, mm-hmm. you want to hit the ground. And, and so we work through all that kind of stuff. And then I sort of let the stunt guys have a free reign and they do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And then they'll come to me and they'll be like, hey, we kind of want to do this. And um, how would we go about that? So then I'll, I'll help them with that stuff. Right. It's interesting, the 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 effort to be accurate on the show. You know, you don't, yeah. like, I guess you don't see that in Hollywood, or at least you didn't used to. Um, <laughs> but it seems well, like a did, lot of effort. You, you did during Errol Flynn's era. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, it turned into the gun movies in the 80s and what makes money. And uh, that was the archery being um, as accurate as possible came from David Nutter, our our original director. And uh, part of it did come from the fact that Jeremy Renner did get so much flack Mm -hmm. uh, as his portrayal as Hawkeye, because, you know, that's your iconic weapon. And and David and production was well aware as to how much flack he did get. So Mm -hmm. they didn't want, you know, you don't want that. That's a movie. Whereas when you have an everyday, every week TV show, you don't want that stuff coming every week. Right. Right? You want, unlike apparently Arrow's fan base, 30 to 40 percent are archers or have become archers. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's almost half our fan base is watching the show because Stephen Amell mm-hmm. is hot and um, the archery. Right. So it's, there's going to be at least one shot of him with an arrow, one shot of him with no shirt in each episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Sometimes both. Sometimes. Sure. I miss those if days. You possibly manage like it. <laughs> Yeah. But I think it's down to We always do our archery shirtless. <laughs> well Yeah. It's down to what the individual wants. Like like you said, Jennifer Lawrence, they didn't she went to get her own. Yeah, she you went to get her own. Because she personally wanted to do it correctly, right? Right. And in my experience as a uh, as you know, providing archaeological knowledge to T V shows, there's no real way of putting yourself up as an archaeological consultant for T V and then <laughs> people will come here. It's not really a, yeah. it's not an existing job, right? Yeah. So you'll only get an offer if they're particularly interested. And, and like one of the, one of the shows that, that, uh, that I worked on before, which I will name, um, I was, uh, I was basically, it was for a documentary. And I was basically asked to confirm what they had thought ah. of themselves. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, it's to do with money, it's to do with time, it's to do with what the viewer wants to see. And I think when, when, yeah, and, and when people like, um, when, when productions like, like Arrow um, put that time into finding a consultant and, and making sure that each, each, I mean, like each archer in the show shoots differently in, in, in some ways. And it's, it, um, it adds a, a level of authenticity. It doesn't go unnoticed, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's why 30% of our fans are archers exactly. and like yeah. kill people. Right. Right. Now, we have to just ask this. You mentioned Arrow Flynn a moment ago. So who is the 
most accurate archer, not on Steven Arrow. Stephen Amell. Stephen Amell. I felt like you were going to have an answer there, but um, if, if people are looking for another accurate <laughs> archer, is Errol Flynn marginally accurate for what he's doing? or uh, As far as like on-screen archers go, um, well, you have to... Mm, that's a tough question, because then you're asking sort of like, do you mean on Hollywood or internationally? Because there's much better people internationally. But if we're looking at North America Hollywood and the big, big Hollywood, I would say Errol Flynn, yeah, because he was trained by Howard Hill, who is the, the, the first guy to ever do my job. And uh, in the in that movie, in The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, there's a lot of instances where real arrows are being shot. We don't do that very often yeah. anymore. <laughs> Um, people are really being shot. Like, so if you ever, if you watch that movie again, um, all the bad guys, the, the, uh, King John's men that are getting shot by arrows are really getting shot by arrows. <laughs> yeah. They've got like padding Hill on or something. Padding and, right? and yeah. 50, okay. 50 extra, $50 extra a day, another Amazing. meal, padding and a plate, padding and a metal <laughs> oh, that's plate. That's a good deal. Yeah. Didn't so, Kur- yeah. Kurosawa did that as well, I believe in his. Kurosawa did that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Kurosawa totally did that as well. Um, so, and that was, also, Kurosawa was one of the first to really use proper, yeah, uh, uh, Kyoto Japanese, Japanese bows, unlike, mm-hmm. um, the Great Wall. Uh, we won't talk about that one. Well, we won't talk about, yeah. One of my favorite depictions, just when you say Kyoto, is um, <laughs> in uh, Hayao Miyazaki's film, um, uh, Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's a couple scenes where they do they do like a quick draw and shoot, but then there, there is one great scene in the middle uh, where he encounters a group of uh, samurai and they're attacking a village. And as one guy's turning his horse to charge him, he very calmly takes out his arrow and he runs it up the finger to knock it and he draws it out. And shoots, and I just when I saw that, I got chills because I was like, "Oh my god, that's it!" Somebody on the show, somebody in this movie researched. It's like Brave Kyoto. It's, it's, same, it's <laughs> the same Brave. Brave, Brave yeah. I would say is the best. Brave, one of the really Brave is Merida is the best on film archer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow, I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, yeah, because the <laughs> the main producer uh, is an archer herself. Right down to the arrow's so, paradox. Right, right down to the archer's paradox. So when she lets go of the arrow, it does wow. like this. Um, yeah, yeah. War of Arrows is another movie that that incorporates the archer's paradox. We won't mention that movie from the uh, '80s with that guy who can't act. But there's no <laughs> there's no archer's paradox on his arrows. Um, mm-hmm. So and it's something that you know a lot of directors are like, well, why is Arrow doing that? And then the CG people or whatever will explain physics wise, and then they'll be like, no, that looks dumb. And then you'll actually see it on screen, and you realize like. In that said aforementioned movie that doesn't exist, it looks dumb. Like when you actually watch Brave and you see the arrow swimming, it, mm-hmm. or War of Arrows, or there's a yeah. couple of Bollywood movies that engage that. It's a uh, for us as archers, it's a bit of a triumph, mm-hmm. but it also looks really cool. I think it looks uh, it's cool to see something that t- show me something else that moves in three different directions at once. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Patricia, your demo reel on IMDb shows you performing a lot of different stunts, including firing two arrows at a time while uh, hanging upside down. Uh, you fire <laughs> while jumping from a wall, all kinds of cool stuff. So first of all, this is very yeah. impressive. I mean, how much historical evidence do we have for trick shooting like that, as opposed to the more kind of typical speed shooting? Does Lars Anderson listen to your podcast? No, no I don't think most people listen to our podcast. You so knew that was That's not true. You have lots of international fans. That's and we love every one fun. of them. All tens you know, of them. If I told you how many times people have actually seen my phone say your podcast on a train randomly going through Europe, and they're like, oh, yeah, I listen to that sometimes. So, no way. Yeah, no, I'm not John, kidding. we need to hang out in Europe um, more. You in Rome. Uh, but uh, trick shooting, historically, I, I don't really – in literature or even manuals, there's there's not uh, no matter what Mr. Anderson says, there's a, a, 
unless he knows something I don't, uh, which is plausible. Uh, there's not a lot of talk about trick shooting. You do have a movie, like if you have a chance to watch War of Arrows on Netflix, where he curves the arrow. Uh, Lars has just done a video where he does something very similar. Physics-wise, it's not impossible. I've done it, and I, w- I will readily admit I did it like three times out of 300 attempts. So mm-hmm. it's it's not it's exactly just the super- one YouTube video that counts, though. Yeah, go large. Um, I don't, I, as far as militaristically on, on a martial level, uh, applicably into, into war, I don't really see trick shooting. Now, that's not to discredit something called the Yamarki or the Jamarki, which is a Turkish, Persian, Syrian method where they actually bring the bow right over their body, shoot, shoot behind their back mm. uh, and shoot down. It's now, or from horseback down or over the wall of a castle so it's the arrow shoots straight down without the archer having to lean over and put themselves in danger so that's about the only trick shooting i would say but to me it, it makes me think about like what like what do you mean by trick yeah shooting that, right because like the, the the main thing that makes it tricky is that we look at it and we go oh that's not it's like you're hacking the bow in a way it's like oh you're mm-hmm. not supposed to do it this way right. but here's how it's done and this, this guy is so good he can he can do that and then what happens is you try to try and justify what you're doing in a video you try to link it to history and that's mm. not how we're taught to read text it's not yeah. how we're taught to look at archaeology yeah, that's pretty much it like when you say the, the the yarmulke that's an awesome thing but it was also a very practical way of shooting off of a castle without leaning over the edge it allows you if you draw a bow down you're off a leaning. wall you're leaning over you're exposing the entire top half yeah. of your body you stand with your back to the wall and draw the bow around you. You can mm-hmm. shoot an arrow without actually exposing any of your body at all. And I imagine soldiers who use that are being trained to do that every mm-hmm. day in lines Turks, of a hundred. You know? Yeah, the Turks and I've read, um, you know, the the uh, the the medieval text by the traveler Ibn Fadlan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also has, you know, um, he he was when we got back from Turkey. Um, I, re- I read this, I happened upon this section reading through the book again, and it, he was talking about how great the Turks are at horseback archery. And he talks mm. about being, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but he talks, but he kind of just tweeted everything that he saw on his trip right. through the Middle East, you know, and he, he says that we're, we're just, we're riding on one of these Turkish archers is, is head. And I, I think like a, like a bird, a bird flies by and the guy shoots it out of the air, you know, and he said that these guys are the most impressive that we've, we've ever, we've ever seen. So, so there is, there's trick shooting in the sense that, yeah, people could do lots of cool stuff and we're very aware of it. But whether it's uh, it's like a, a win-fail video type mm-hmm. trick, I, you know, or I don't know. It's, or or something that was a, it's, across the board. Yeah, sort of like yeah. the anarchy was definitely something that was taught militaristically uh, across the board as, as, a, as a movement. Is it, is it, it's still a form of trick, sort of trick archery because you're doing this thing that you don't normally do, right? So, right. You know, it sort of depends. I mean, again, you can go back to to the Odyssey, right? And uh, when he gets home, he shoots the arrow yeah. through the axis. This trick archery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah. Lars shoots knives, yeah. arrows at knives. Okay. I shoot yeah. arrows at knives and split them in. So, yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's just like it's human. It's human nature to be like. I'm look, awesome. like look how this. awesome I am! Right. Exactly. You can't do this. I mean, even Robin Hood did trick archery. Yeah, Robin Hood right. splits the arrow, right? That's and, a trick, right? And exactly. William Tell mm-hmm. with the crossbow, which is an archery, but uh, uh, with mm. the apple on the head. So yeah, right. so I guess I guess Lars Andersons have existed throughout time, yeah, in a way. And I mean, I st- I do. You saw the video. I do some kind of trick archery. I mean, part of that video was uh, was just to showcase that yeah, this this kind of stuff uh, it can be done. It's not it's mm-hmm. not impossible. It, it can right. be done. So. And it's pretty damn cool too. It is pretty cool. 
I fell out of the. You, what you're missing is the blooper the reel of, of the dismount from the tree. It was rather um, graceful. Yeah, it was rather not. Yeah, not not as graceful as I thought. So, <laughs> we draw a curtain over it. Uh, yeah, we pretty much. I was like, stop filming now. Um, <laughs> So we know archers were important in, for example, uh, naval engagements in the medieval north. Um, we've got these attestations of Arthur of archers at the naval battles at Hofsfjord and at Svolder. Uh, and there's this famous line in Olaf's saga when one of the king's archers uh, grabs his bow, pulls it and pulls too far and says, too weak, too weak is the king's bow. Uh, now, that's not just a political statement, although clearly the the metaphor is not lost on the reader, uh, but it's also a comment on different bow draws and the preferences of an individual user. And you wonder how close these ships needed to be before the archery would be effective. So I'm wondering how strong is the draw on a medieval bow or a really modern bow? And what's the range for you know strength, for strength of draw? Or do we even know a question like that? Well, if, I guess if we're talking about Einar... Einar Thumbershelver. Yeah. Was, mm-hmm. He was known as the strongest archer in Norway. So mm-hmm. even if you had a... I think the story is trying to convey, even if you um, even if you had like a 150-200-pound bow, the idea <laughs> is is that Einar can pull that. Einar's right. bow is always going to be strong. It's a bit like how when Ajax throws the spear, mm-hmm. it goes through seven layers yeah. of, of leather <laughs> on a shield. I don't know any shields... In ancient Greece, that had seven or needed seven layers. Point right. is, if there were seven layers, his spear would go still through. go through. His would, his would trick yeah. shot again, right? He's a hero, mm-hmm. and I think I, it, when I read it, I, I, to my mind, it was wow. You know, even the king's bow is too weak for for Einar. You know, right. it's like if Einar's bow, because that's what happens is, is that Finn on the other side hits his bow with an arrow and it explodes. Mm-hmm. So it's like not any bow will do if Einar doesn't have his bow. Then yeah, he knows he's not going to fight. He takes out his bow, sword. He hits it when it's under draw, right? He does hit it when it's. He draws. Yeah, he draws, draws it, it so back and he hits it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Like that's the thing. Like I think, given the physics of archery, when the bow's under tension, that that was a Finn did a smart thing there, shooting shooting that <laughs> bow while it was under tension, because that would definitely mm-hmm. make it explode. Um, yeah, draw weights are something that are very. It's very difficult to pinpoint those things mm-hmm. because obviously we can't brace the Ballandary bow or we can't brace Etsy's bow or anything along. We can't actually put a string on it. So what we can do is what Stephen does, which is experimental archaeology, and try and figure mm-hmm. out, you know, given the width and what kind of wood this bow is and what kind of shape it is and 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 all of that as to what the draw weights are. So. Yeah, I would agree. I would say like that NR must have just had something that was just mm-hmm, that yeah. exceptionally little bit bigger than <laughs> than everyone else's mm. or or even if everyone else had an elm bow and he had a U bow or or a straight U bow say from trading in Spain or something all those things are a conjecture <laughs> but you know it's just like I would agree. I would think that he just he just had that bow that was just that little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think I think it's a or he had a horn bow. <laughs> I think when you're looking at when you look at bows, the problem with bows is is that unlike unlike a sword, uh, a bow is is entirely organic. Right? Mm-hmm. So first of all, not many of them survive. So instead of like being able to look at one type of sword among uh, several different Ulfbert swords that were found in the one region of the one time period, for us that's going to be one bow and maybe a fragment of it. Mm-hmm. So we have fragmented bows that appear in different parts of Europe from different time periods. Um, and but we also have the the corresponding arrowheads, the types of arrowheads we have. We also have mm-hmm. armor, 
we know from historic texts what type of clothing people were wearing to battles. We know from some images yeah. what type of people. Yeah. yeah so we have the arrows. We have the thickness of the t- potential thickness of, of shafts based on the inside of the, the the arrow, the dimensions. So like there's there's we can make a few deductions. Mm-hmm. Right. First of all, I would say that um, the the idea of uh, a war bow being a particular type and of a particular shape and size and being of a specific length for it to qualify a lot of that didn't come in until um much later when when guilds are formed and you mm-hmm. actually will be punished if you didn't follow the same criteria a lot of the bows that i i've examined they come up in settlement context they come up in in houses so there aren't just bows for for war there's bows for for hunting there's bows mm-hmm. that normal people would use maybe even for sport mm-hmm. um you could say something is a, a longbow or a warbow or something that was intended for use as, as, as such. But in order to shoot that as an adult, one has to start practicing as a younger, as a young right. child. Yeah. And so if I wanted to train a young, a young child in, in, in how to shoot a warbow, I would give him a bow that has the same dimensions, the same style and shape, but it would be relatively smaller to fit that particular mm-hmm. shot. Yeah. Sometimes you might find a bow in, in Ireland. We have found bows in Ireland. Um, one of which is, is Waterford. And it has it's the exact same as the Hedeby bow, except it looks like somebody sort of pinched the corners of the picture and just went <laughs> and made it smaller. It's like a shrunky version. Yeah. And 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 it's it's hard it's hard for a non bow maker to look at that and, and they'd say, Well, what is that? And you'd be like, Oh, well, it's a it's it's a war bow, it's a type of Hedeby bow. And you'd be like, that's nah, too weak for that. And they'd be like, Well, yeah, in the hands of Aynor Tambershelber, maybe. <laughs> right. Um, but then you have like the arrowheads like uh, like the 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 bodkin. Which is designed to go through chainmail, and and if if you've read any experimental archaeology projects about the effect that medieval war arrows have on armor, it's not just the design of the bodkin alone; mm-hmm. it's the force, it's the mm-hmm. speed of the arrow, and the, and the amount of pressure that's converted from a draw into mm-hmm. the arrow. Mm-hmm. It has it has to it has to all come together. Right. Um, so it tells me that while there were many different bows knocking around, there would be bow makers who were famed for, for their craftsmanship. And there are people who would maybe carve their own bow and bring it to war themselves because they were asked to. Um, right. Somebody like Aynor Thambershelver has something very, very strong because he had to hit people from meters and meters away in a ship. Right. He had to he had to shoot all day with it and he had to... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he, you gotta kind of wonder what Finn. Had he had to pierce armor. Side, right? What was Finn wearing? Yeah, what did what was Finn? Right. What did Finn have? You hope not just chainmail because uh, no. the, not just because that would be right. cold. That'd right, be very well, cold. I, you know, yeah, it's very sure, painful against skin. <laughs> yeah, if you have right. any Never hair, skin. Anywhere. pinchy, pinchy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you have any hair, the no, Finns are hairy people. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Terry Pratchett said that from the point of view of an archer, chainmail can be thought of as a series of very large holes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah. You guys are talking about um, lots of different bows, and you mentioned earlier that uh, you know every different culture has a different kind of bow. Can you tell us a little bit about the the, the variety of bows out there in history? Now, that's a very broad question, so you can be selective about bows right that here. are particularly impressive <laughs> to you guys. Uh, well, the, the 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 two the two main types that we have in traditional or historic archery are that you have a self bow and you have a composite bow. Mm-hmm. The self bow means basically it's carved entirely out of one piece of wood. The composite bow means that it's made of smaller materials, including wood um, and things like like antler and horn and and glue and sinew. Um, but they're they're held together, right? Um, countries that have thick, large trees that can be carved into that and retain uh, the strength 
that would be needed for that type of boat, uh, they tend to go for self-boats. Countries that have more maybe arid regions or, or grow smaller trees or don't have access to bows to wood like you, they would tend to, to start making bows um, out of composite materials. So, so, so the more the more the more you go away from Europe towards Asia, the more popular the the composite recurve bow is. Mm. And then the more into Europe you go, the more likely you are to find um, self bows that look more or less like what the Vikings are shooting. Uh, and then when you go north, uh, you go north, you go yeah. north uh, into Finland and east from Finland into Siberia uh, and Russia, the Volga River areas, you end up with something that's also a composite bow, but instead but of kind having of just um, not the same, just different. yeah, instead of having horn, um, and it, it's two woods glued together. Uh, sometimes backed with sinew and and uh, wrapped in birch bark. They're quite long bows. They're uh, mm. lengthwise. They're up to six feet, uh, but they have a very they have the same um, what we call sias, which you see at the end of a of a horn bow or an Asiatic what we call Asiatic composites, the pieces that sort of form the recurve. And these bows are are long bows uh, in mm. their length, but they have an Asiatic composite look to them in that they have size and that the bow is made out of two to three pieces of different types of wood laminated together. So they're still considered a composite bow. They're not one piece of wood mm -hmm. uh, like a self bow. So and we get those bows in the North and uh, they're, they're, they're probably, they're the only bows that I've ever successfully shot in negative degree weather. Uh, they work. Yeah, they work really well. Yeah, because they, uh, they're you know they're a bow that you find in Finland and Siberia. So, right. Uh, last year the temperatures here dropped down to minus ten, minus fifteen, and I, I took uh, my bow aptly named Marcus outside and 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 uh, shot it. And um, yeah, it worked great. It works better in the cold than it does in the warm anyway. So mm. and that makes sense because the materials that were used to make that bow were born of that region yeah they're, right? they're made out of something called reaction wood because they have birch trees and pine trees and both of those woods are crap for making a self bow uh so the as the region changed climactically going from having elm uh to having birch and mostly pine they they figured out that by using something called reaction wood and gluing it together you mm -hmm. can make a very strong uh very hardy cold weather uh, bow. So you have those as sort of the what, what we have is the self bow, the long bow, the right. Asiatic composite, and and this sort of. But then a self bow, a self bow in one part of the world could be completely different to another part. Of the world. Yeah. So yeah. I know, and what I what I find fascinating about world archery in that sense is that, you know, it's not like somebody in in a in a in a time and place decides to to make a type of bow and sits down. The bow that they make is the one that they've they know of from from where they're from. Mm -hmm. and it's made from the materials of the woodland that they're hunting in, and right. it's made of the materials that they're taking from the animals they're hunting. So when I see a new bow in a museum in whatever country I'm in, first of all, it's like this cultural stamp. If you can mm -hmm. kind of get Sherlock about it and you can look at what that piece is, what that piece is, what that is, that tells you about the animals they're hunting and the trees that they're hunting them in. Right. And then you look at the shape of it, and when you shoot many different kinds of bows and make a couple of different kinds of ones, you realize why some bow makers opt for certain things. So, so if you're in a very dry climate um, and you make a, a, a bow from, from a drier wood to what another person might make in another part of the world, you're going to go for maybe like a wider, uh, a wider, uh, a flatter design because mm. your climate and the, the dryness of that area, the tree that grew there and, and what it'll allow you to do in that climate requires a greater uh, plane for the, 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 the pressure 
to mm-hmm. to uh, to distribute through that. Mm-hmm. Like you could bring that boat to another part of the world and it would it it, it would it break, break, right? It wouldn't yeah. work. And like so, when you talk about the two wood bows, they're also using it's not just pine they're using, but they're they're using compression pine as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from the ones that I got to look at, and and I spoke to a couple of Nor- when I was in Norway, I spoke to a couple of guys who actually made those for their dissertations. They were able to tell me from their examination that the compression the compression pine is that they know how it works but it's like the the pine tree it it grows um isn't it that it grows at an odd angle through it's a when it when it so when i'll I'll use this nifty ruler (laughs) okay um if you imagine a tree growing straight up and say the wind's blowing it or or the soil shifting the tree then starts to do this or what right. I was thinking it's was there's a, there's a stream going to one side of it and there's no earth as long as it to hold it. To so it compensates and it grows it. differently. Mm-hmm. So on so, this side of the tree... Well, hang on. First they cut. <laughs> first they, I'm getting excited. they cut. He's excited about it. I've built one of these things. So he, he cut this part out, this middle part out, mm. right? And if, you, if you've ever looked at wood cut in half, if you've cut wood... Most of the time, it's it's so it's cylindrical, uh, right? It's going right, in sure. circles from the middle. So if you've ever looked at a piece of wood cut where the heartwood is more towards the the edge of the wood, mm-hmm. uh, that's compression. That's what's happened is that the heartwood has moved to one side. So they mm. cut that piece out, and then they cut the um, the bow stave out, the wedge of the bow stave with that compression wood and then they turn it around and it's then backed with the birch. So Mm. the part that's in the middle is really able to take an incredible amount Mm. of compression when the bow is drawn with the birch on the back acting the same way as horn works on a composite bow is it's coming under tension and the heartwood on the inside, the pine wood that would normally explode into a million dramatic pieces (laughs) is now able to come under this really crazy yeah. amount of, of tension. So the use of compression wood is something you find right across the Northern Hemisphere, right across Canada. And in some instances, there are compression wood uh, composite horn uh, bows uh, in in the east of the U.S. They're, they're, in, um, they're in a museum in uh, New York, in I wanna, <laughs> Manhattan, I think. Mm-hmm. Really? So there are composite bows made out of that same compression. So if you have, if you have North um, America, if you if you look at the cross section of yew, yew is a very slow growing tree. So the, the tree rings are probably like a millimeter apart from each other, right? Mm. Whereas on a on an average pine tree, they might be a centimeter apart, right? right or two right. inch. Mm-hmm. But because the tree had to turn, right? So so what I was thinking pull was the string was going to has to pull itself back up on this side. The tree rings are real close together, really tight. so they make mm. the bow out of that section of the tree. Yeah. They turn. But the point is, they never they never discovered that in 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 Ireland because they never had to. Right. Ah. And where they needed bows in, in in northern Finland and in northern Norway, they 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 just that's it's not that they had to compensate either because they just that's just how they made bows. Right. Right. They developed that way. They didn't. They, but they didn't. They didn't have the like you said, like environmentally and animal wise. There is no animal yeah. up there that has a horn that you can right. use like they use in composite bows. Antler doesn't work. Antler is too porous. It doesn't have that same ability. And yet they came up with a similar recurve. But they came up with is, something very, very similar yeah. given right. with, yeah. So they, Another recurve is uh, the Alaskan Inuit bow, yeah. which is on the same sort of climate, but on mm-hmm. the other side of the world. Sure. And they make their bows from splicing together driftwood. Right. Yeah. And then they back them in incredibly long in. lengths of sinew braided and corded. It's called the cable back bow. Yeah. Mm. 
It's uh, Loretta Decker, who we spoke to a while back, uh, who uh, works at the Lonson Meadow um, in Newfoundland, talked about this, that, you know, if you if you sort of assume that people in different parts of the world, given roughly similar circumstances, trying to solve the same problem are going to come up with variations of the same solution. Mm-hmm. Right. You can probably make a lot of guesses to fill in the gaps because people are people and they're going to sort of come up with the best solution to the problem. And if, if that yeah. shape of bow is the best solution, you find the materials that allow you to make that shape. Exactly. The materials that are around them, that's sort of something that fascinates me about archery. It's just that we all sort of all around the world, except for Australia, we developed uh, bows and arrows and we Mm. developed them using the materials that were around us, as well as then once trade started, then then trading those trading those materials yeah, Did the right. sayas on the Finn Ugric bow did, did they make those bows first and then someone in mm-hmm. Asia went oh yeah, that's yeah. a really brilliant yeah. idea or did someone in Siberia see a Mongolian bow and go whoa hey let's trade mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. I'll figure out how to make this thing work with the materials that I have so for to me like that's mm-hmm. definitely something that's fascinating me about archery is that all around the world except for one continent <laughs> you find archery in various levels forms and and sometimes aspects. it's forgotten. Sometimes it's reinvented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in Ireland, in Ireland, we used the bow solidly throughout from the very first settlers, um, which is uh, in around sort of nine thousand BC, and then it disappears in the early Bronze Age. We don't start Ooh. making, yeah, we don't start making bronze mm. arrowheads at all. They're not practical. It's much quicker to and, and more effective and and, co- and cost effective to make arrows out of small arrows out of stone. And we continue making stone arrowheads throughout the early Bronze Age, and then archery just disappears. It's it's we don't get arrows back in the archaeological record in Ireland until the arrival of the Vikings. But then I've I've examined a bow before I came here, which to me looked like it was sort of a it was late very late Viking early Anglo Norman, sort of eleventh century tenth I say eleventh twelfth century, um, but it was it was the first bow I got to examine in the National Museum of Ireland that that was unfinished. So there was there was a large crack at the center of the bow, uh, or or half half made bow, right? But it it was it was made of yew. I could see where the guy had started, like shaping the handle. Mm-hmm. I could see all of the different tool marks that I make myself when I yeah. when I kind of because you're not using you're not using rasps or sandpaper. So every every last cut you make has to be sort of a bounced cut that doesn't leave a deep cut mark, mm-hmm. which leaves these ripples all over the wood. And uh, you can smooth it then over with a, with a, with a stone or something. But um, I could see all of these ripples that that that, I, that I'm very familiar with already. But because uh, um, it was bro, it, it was it was it was unfinished. All of those tool marks were, were left on it. And so I determined what it, what what age it might be. And when we got the carbon date back, we realized that um, that yeah, it, it was a bow. It was from from the Anglo-Norman mm. late Viking age. Um, but it wasn't. It was found in a part of Ireland where the Vikings didn't have any other contact. Mm, really. Right? Oh. So the curator got real excited because, like, <laughs> oh my God! Because all the books say the Irish didn't use bows and arrows, Irish but I, didn't I, I would, I would like to think that a few thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Right. right. <laughs> well, there's right. an industrious Irishman who saw Oops. some, saw some, you know, Viking guy and was like. That's a good that. idea. I like the cut of his jib. I like right. You know, I think they keep shooting at us. We should get one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. This conversation about the materials that people are using that are available to them, right, um, makes me think of Iceland because one of the problems that Iceland has is they, they cut down all the trees or whatever is available. Mm. So do we find in, in Iceland that they're using mainly Norwegian wood? We haven't found any bows in Iceland. We've found arrowheads. Mm-hmm. So no no bows themselves. Um mm. 
all the I believe all the arrowheads that we have found, I think I've seen them all. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, most of them are, are pertaining. Yeah, there's not that many. Most of them are pertaining to hunting. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we do have Gunnar and various other uh, instances in our sagas where people are shooting each other. Right. Uh, but again, I feel like uh, Gunnar's bow, much like Einar's bow, is something that was just a little extra special that right. he had. Uh, either they came from Norway or were traded from Norway. When we look at the Mary Rose bows, everybody refers to those as English longbows, but none of those bow staves are, are English. They're all Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I won't get into the misnomer of English longbow, but uh, most of the, you know, I would I would guess, and, and he's the archaeologist, so I would guess that most of the bows that would be coming to, or that would have been employed in Iceland would have been traded for or brought, or possibly brought as staves, because mm-hmm. even... You know, again, with the, the Hundred Years' War, uh, during that time, if you were a merchant and you were trading with Spain, if you were bringing stuff from Spain or you had traded through Spain, you had to also pay a tariff of, of you bow staves oh, to really? the point where they pretty much wiped out the uh, the population of yew trees in Spain. And uh, mm. the yew trees that are in Spain now that I saw last year, which are maybe, you know, a diameter of this, are now big enough uh, to be made into bows, and they were planted in the reign of James the first. Oh, jeez! So, and they're poisonous. They're also yeah, poisonous. yeah. So, um, and they're covered in ants and gross. Um, well. <laughs> but yeah, I have no doubt that you know bow staves would be something because the bow itself, once you've made it, you get it onto a boat, and it's being manipulated by that environment and the salt air and all that kind of stuff. It would make more sense to me, especially with that historical context of the trading of both staves. Mm-hmm. And we even have aspects in, in, in areas of Turkey and, and the, and the stance the Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, where they're trading in, you know, horn pieces for bows. So mm-hmm. trading a bow stave into Iceland so you can make your own bow doesn't seem like a very huge. And huge what, 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 what pricks my ears there is, uh, the, the bow that I was talking about just earlier, the, the unfinished bow. The reason that was brought to my attention is because they were they were cleaning up an ass, like an area of, of yeah. the storage part of the museum, and it was listed as wooden object. Oh, really? Oh, you wouldn't because, believe how many bows are listed as wooden yeah. object. Because the keeper uh, um, had an interest in bows personally mm. himself, and he knew me. He said, "Well, I wonder is that a bow?" And he and he contacted. And I was able to confirm. Yeah, it, it is a bow. It has all of the trappings <laughs> of a bow. <laughs> But it's not a bow yet. <laughs> the thing uh, he broke awesome. it before it got thrown away. So even if they found a deposit of bow staves, what did a Viking bow stave look like? Yeah. Right. And is it like Does they could be? Know? They could already be discovered, and we're just waiting for the next the next scientist, the next archaeologist mm-hmm. to pick up the to pick well, up the, the, the torch and the this the cylindrical item that was found um, from from Nal's saga with Hjortir. Yeah, the th- the theoretical yeah. thumb ring. Now yeah. that's not a thumb ring. Yeah. Uh, I went to, I was in Reykjavik two years ago and they, we looked at it. They let me look at it. I brought uh, three samples of Asian thumb rings, the cylindrical style, mm-hmm. uh, Manchu, Chinese, Mongolian, Korean. Uh, and we, they compared it. They took a kajillion pictures. It's, I, I would 100%, 99.99% say that thing is not a thumb ring unless mm-hmm. it, you know, somebody was shooting with their toe. Like I could probably get <laughs> both of my thumbs and like one more thumb into it. It doesn't right. have the classic shape of a thumb ring it doesn't have the convex and the concave ends like uh like those types of thumb rings so it could have been used by a frost giant I, a frost giant <laughs> i'm gonna say that uh or the troll that, that troll. shot one's sure. face uh sure. i'm gonna say uh that, that that is not a thumb ring right. and 
people who are also uh, Manchu archery or, or it, that sort of uh, thumb ring style, cylindrical thumb ring style specialist agree with me. I took pictures with rulers and everything. Mm-hmm. So, so this is you know, Hjort's when, ring, that, the, the quote-unquote Hjort's ring that's been... been yeah, the, it's not. It's. Uh, I'm just saying, as a person with a fairly robust beard, I looked at that and immediately thought of a beard ornament. Yeah, you know well, that's, that's what is, I looked at. I looked at and I, something I suggested to them. They're like, "It's too small for a bracelet." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's not too small for like something you could put a beard yeah. in, or a person as me, a person with hair that you would you would put that away." Like that's that's exactly what I thought. There are so <laughs> many inexplicable tiny objects that we still don't know what right. they do that are in museums. Right. They're just not put in display cases because they get a big X on them and they, mm-hmm. they don't know what. Well, sort what of the interesting, for. The interesting. And it, it's it, what what can happen is is that you 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 kind of you put a, a certain item on a pedestal and it becomes about the mystery of what yeah. right. is it and you have a lot of questions which are like often oftentimes I, I would be handed a I'd be I'd be asked by a museum to verify is this whether or not this is a bow. And that's what they want is they want you to verify it as a bow. Right. Right. And then I would say, well it's it's a it's a stick. Right? <laughs> it's just it a, a stick. Wooden object. Right? It's a it's a it's a stick. Or I got I got one I got I came into a museum to look at one bow and, and that's what it looked like to me. It looked like a, a stick. It was even charred. It was sharp on one end. It was charred. It looked like pokey sticks. It, it looked like yeah. somebody had their sausage on the end of it. They cooked right. it and then they, they sort of threw it away. <laughs> but it kind of does also look like an old an old wooden bow, right, without a string. And I said, yeah, I, I think I think it's a stick. And they said, well, you know, we kind of had a discussion and and, and the person who was asking me was. Basically, I was giving them reasons why it wasn't a bow, and they were giving me reasons as to why it was. Uh-huh. It was. And I guess one person is using deduction, the other is using induction, and they're trying to yeah. to fight. And it's it's all it's all down to you know. I would say why would it why would it be a thumb ring, right? Mm-hmm. If, if somebody yeah. found it and had no knowledge of thumb well, rings in the first place, what would their interpretation? I think that's kind of what it was: is that it was it was found, and because it's got the two hearts on it, and then you know it right. was found at the particular area where the battle was taking place, but you know, why would they leave his weapons behind or something? Like that. But then actually seeing it, like I said, well, it was too big. It fell off. Too big. But, yeah, <laughs> but something, something interesting came out of that and me contacting them and them sort of being like, well, you're an independent person sort of doing their own research. And, and they started to go through most of their artifacts that they have back there looking for. They asked mm. me to mm-hmm. pictures of like, mm-hmm. well, what does a stick look like as opposed to a bow? So, <laughs> you know, I started to send them pictures of, uh, there were some artifacts in the London Museum that belonged to an Asiatic composite, which was brought there by the Romans, uh, and they incorrectly had those things marked as women's hair ornaments for years until an archer mm. walked in. An academic from Hungary or, or Turkey or somewhere in the area walked in and went, um, no, not ladies' hair ornaments. These are parts of a, a composite bow. So that is something I really enjoy about visiting Iceland. Mm-hmm. As far as the Icelanders go, they're like, oh, tell us more. Like, like we want to <laughs> identify these things. Like, tell us, please tell us more. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, they have hundreds of Turkish Asiatic composite bows in storage and rings and stuff. And they just, they, nobody's yeah. allowed to go near them. So mm-hmm. we don't know what they have. They have stuff. I mean, I've been in museums where I've seen stuff labeled as archery equipment. And I'm like, um, <laughs> Hey. Or in Ireland and England, you have these stone bracers from the Neolithic, you know, and they're these tiny, tiny little little bits of stone that would have taken hours, days to, to, to carve out. And, mm-hmm. you know, they call them bracers. And I just, for, the, for the rest, for the, I, just, yeah. I just don't know how, where they go, how they yeah. work. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think I never even bothered doing an experiment because I know if if I because they stand up like a, a half a centimeter yeah. off the skin. So if you were to use them, it'd catch. I just somebody called them. A, it it goes back to like maybe some archaeologists maybe in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are archaeologists. Called them. Called them antiquarian. Called yeah. them uh, a bracer because it, it made sense in their head. And now it's just right. become a typological name. Yeah. And when they find them, they put them on display and they call them a bracer. And then they end up in archery equipment. So you have like a bow and arrow and a bracer. Right, that, that's specifically Ooh. Victorian kind of science where they sort it of just yeah, their yeah. pipe and say, ah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bracer. Let's go have lunch. Well, it's the Caesar's head phenomena where you found mm. Caesar's head over there and another body. Oh, they must go together, even though the brake doesn't work. <laughs> Uh, now, before we leave Nyal Saga completely, uh, I think I already know the answer to this, but I feel like people will write in if we don't ask. When Gunnar asks Holgerth for a length of her hair to make a bowstring, yeah. <laughs> uh, this doesn't work, right? <laughs> I mean, even if she'd um, said yes, that's not actually going to well, work. We could, yeah. <laughs> what would work is that if you relied solely on your wife that you were verbally abusing. Right. You had, right. It works in the sense that if, if you rely on, on, on a person that you're abusing to help mm-hmm. you out in a sticky situation, you'll be screwed. Yeah, you'll yes, right. her tactic to screw <laughs> him over works. Yes. yes. This is um this thing here. I don't know if you can kind of Oh yeah. She's holding up a it's it's a plank of wood that has yeah. nails in it and it's got holes in it to hold nails and nails on this adjustable. So this is how you make uh what we call a Flemish twist string. Mm-hmm. Um and it, as you can see, like the, you know, we tie the string here and it sort of goes all the way down and up and across all these, these nails here. Each one of these nails represents it, a strand of a bowstring. So you can do seven strands or you can do 10 do strands. Have, so for those strand. who can't see it looks something, something like, I don't know, a combination of a torture device and a cribbage board. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a way, it's a way to, it's. Definitely the way that strings were made. And I mean, mm-hmm. here, I don't know if you can cut, see how it's sort yeah. of twisted in oh, yeah, itself. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how bow strings would have been made at the time. Some right. of the uh, Viking bows, some of, they have just a half knock on the side, so it would have been tied at the bottom. Um, I personally, unless Nall had flying fingers, <laughs> I don't... Uh, Right. I don't. I don't. But really in the story, she doesn't make him the string. She asks. No. No. Right. Asks, right. No, he asks, he asks her, "Can you make me one?" And she's no, like, "No." He asks her for hair to make one. He doesn't right. ask her to make one. He's like, "Bitch, give me your hair." And she's like, <laughs> "F you. You're gonna die." That's. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, I, I think that's symbolic. No, I don't think is. anyone would. Oh yeah. I think no, it's a symbol. But, yeah, I think. It's I think. Hey, no, 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 no. We were. We were. We were. Uh, we were on set. I've I've made string in this a full bow string in in in, in like two minutes before when we were on set when we needed. Mm. We needed well, Gunnar could string. do some pretty cool things. Quick. You could make so. a string real quick, could, but not out of not out of human hair. Right. Human hair. Yeah, well, you maybe get. And not like, if you're yeah. mean to me. I'm just not going to help you. Yeah, I'm right. not going to help you. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Frank's casket? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I, do you think do you, do you think that's the scene that they're depicting in that on the lid? Um, I, I mean, it's it's. I love your reaction. <laughs> I love your that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? Um, I boy, do I really want to weigh in on this? It's uh, one of these, right? It's, it's, it's a I'm, gonna, up, I'm just gonna give you the visual, and we can move. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm with. Yeah, I'm kind of yeah. here. Yeah. I'm sort of. I'm. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of want to go look right at it, and I want to look at it. I want to mm-hmm. actually look. I want to. It's one. It thing does to, look like the scenes on different sides of the caskets are sort of cherry picked. So it makes definitely. sense to me that whoever commissioned them could have just picked mm-hmm. yeah. their, their favorite parts, greatest hits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The, exactly. the lid was a purely feminist. Kind of like the Bayou Tapestry. Greatest hits. Greatest. 
<laughs> Literally. No, uh, Andy, we had a Gragas question. Do you want to ha- ask that or you want me to? No, I actually out? wanted to ask uh, Stephen. He just talked about making string really fast. Uh, how fast oh, can yeah. you make a bow in a pinch if you had to make an effective <laughs> oh, bow? In a pinch? How quick? Well, yeah, it depends. Like if I was if I was hunting, maybe, you got a U tree handy. <laughs> the heavier the bow, uh, the the longer it's going to take mm-hmm. because there's a lot more to just the thickness of the wood that goes into a bow's strength. There's 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 a lot to do with timing, how little you bend it throughout the process. Um, you're 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 doing a lot of gradual stuff to to tailor the bow to bend the bow and shape the bow without applying so much pressure that you lose lots of poundage so that's a, a the stronger the bow the more meticulous you have to be um i've i've made a bow in in like 45 minutes before um wow when it impressive. was a child we were on excavation we were in serbia and i was boasting about survival skills and they were like so you could make <laughs> and we were surrounded by we were surrounded by like ash staves so i mm. i picked one that was that was um, sort of, I don't know, maybe like two inches diameter, uh-huh. and and a nice trick is 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 they call it the the thirty minute thirty minute bow or something. If you get a tree, normally what I do is I take a trunk of a tree and I'd split mm-hmm. it in mm-hmm. half, and then I would make I would I would make um, two tapered ends of the stave. You prepare the stave and then taper both ends, and then gradually start building into a bow. If you've no time for that. You can pick a much younger tree mm. that's already tapered exactly. on the top, mm. but it's thicker at the bottom. And what you do is you just carve the bow out of the, the thicker half, and the other half is already tapered, and you can get a bow. <laughs> so I used it. I made it in like 45 minutes, and I, I, sh- I shot it. Um, I had a, a makeshift arrow. I made the fletch out of We were excavating in a cornfield in Serbia, and I made fletch out of these thick corn uh, leave, husk, the, husk. the husk leaves. I mean, <laughs> and I just attached a little um, one of our one of our little digging tool tips on, on mm. the end of it, and I made an arrow. <laughs> but um, archers are your friend for the apocalypse. I, I didn't get a chance to weigh it. I didn't get a chance to weigh it, but I think on my my first draw, my first shot was around forty uh, uh, thirty five to forty pounds, mm. which is perfectly adequate for for hunting. hunting yeah. I'd mm. say after we played with it. I'd say after about twenty shots, it went down to about fifteen pound because it was it was losing strength. It wasn't seasoned. It was sure. so. Um, yeah, it's all it's all down to to yeah. what type of bow and, and and what you want to get out of it. Yeah, you, know? you mentioned Fletchery. How complicated is is making arrows? I see, um, you spend a lot of time doing it. We do. We spend a lot of time. Stephen spends more time than I do now because uh, I did it for the first four years. So, so you make uh, him. We, I make, yeah, I make him. Um, She's into uh, five number digits. Uh, yeah, stuff. I'm I'm easily into over thousands, thousands of arrows, lots mm. of different types. Um, I mean, Stephen does, there. when you look at a medieval arrow or older arrows, the fletch is whipped on, which means it's, it's, it's tied on. In some instances, you have glue. Uh, definitely for your your Mary Rose arrows, there there was glue, <clears throat> rabbit hide glue used mixed with verdigris, uh, which kept the fletch mites away as well as uh, you know work to increase the viscosity of the glue. Sorry, um, fletch mites. I know. I was I never heard of a. Yeah, fletch mite. I don't even. You know, I have some arrows upstairs. There's a tiny little mites, kind of like the ones that live on your face, and yeah, they huh. will they will actually because because fletch is feather, so it's the yeah. same stuff as this. So you pack your ship with them. You head off to war. You right. yeah. in France. You and open you, up your crates, and, and your feathers oh just sticks. Just right? yeah, no. you're just covered. More than once, I, I, you know, they're like a little mite there, or, or industrious spiders. Even some moths will will eat a mm-hmm. 
So, so fletching, my, depending on what you're talking about as far as fletching. So like for Arrow, we take something like this, which your viewers won't see, but this is like, a, or your listeners, uh, it's a regular Arrow with a vinyl fletch. And then we take them off into kind of looking like, like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot of cleaning. So that's a shaft with, with no fletch. And then we add on whatever fletch the show needs. So in this case, this is the green and black of arrows, arrows fletch. Mm -hmm. Um, Now when you're whipping or tying on a fletch medieval style or, or even older, uh, it does take a little bit more uh, time, patience, finger dexterity. (laughs) That depends on what you like. Um, Time and patience are like different things. So like, well, I experienced, you know, when I do whipping of medieval arrows and stuff like that, I get in a very Zen sort of focus. I, put on some podcast in the background and, 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 and do it. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're on a show deadline and they're screaming at us for arrows and, and that gets a little stressful, but, uh, <laughs> if we want to make, if we want to make like 500 arrows in a week, you, we would, we would lay up jigs and you have yeah. arrows and you, in that, they're behind us. These, really... these jigs that you have behind this, the, you know, they have, um, uh-huh. they have clamps and basically you, you mm-hmm. can take, um, looks like this. Yeah, so it might oh, yeah. it might take a day to do one fletch, and the next day when the glue is dry, you can you can twist it around and do another fletch. But it means mm. it might take a day to do one. But it means in three days you might have five hundred arrows ready. But they didn't use these things. There's no evidence for like fletch jigs no. in wow. the past. So that's where I was saying the time and patience. Because you, you, we can fletch arrows and then go play video games or go go out and, and see a movie. Or we something, don't do right? that. We don't do that. We sit and we read. <laughs> you could. He said you right. could do. Yeah, it, right? we research and we read the script. <laughs> you you yeah. think if about you're, arrows. If you're, when you're making a when you're making a, a Viking arrow, um, you have to do it all three at the same time. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're 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 gluing them, you're laying them on, and then you're binding them to keep the feather in place as it as it dries. As the, as the and dry, that's yeah. tedious. That requires patience because yeah. you're you're trying to hold three feathers at the same time. You're trying to grab it, and everything has to be tight. Everything has to be tight, and it has to be everything has to be the 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 flesh has to be finely shaved and flattened or you'll start cutting your your skin off your hand and uh, you also got a thing like when you know you can look at the last name of fletcher uh a lot of people have a misconception especially for something like robin Hood, where you think that the archers made their bows and they made their arrows which they didn't um other people did boyers made their bows and fletchers made their arrows and you know again we take the hundred years war uh the, the the first excursion of the Hundred Years War, every goose in England had to give up six six wing feathers from each wing, um, and and arrows have to be when you're dealing with natural feathers, you can't put a, a feather from a left wing on an arrow with two feathers from a right wing, or else your arrow will do crazy trick archery mm-hmm. that you don't want it to do. So all that stuff has to be taken into account. So when you're putting on your fletch, you know, you want them to all be right wing uh, or all be left wing. And how long do you want them? And uh, especially when you're looking at older arrows throughout history, you know, you get some, the Mary Rose arrows, the fletch were quite huge. Mongolian arrows, eagle feather fletch this big, but then you get a Turkish flight arrow where the fletch is like this minuscule. And they all do different stuff. They all do they different They make the arrow stuff, react in different ways. Fly way. faster, yeah. straighten out, you're like all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So also you need, um, you need fletching that's going to help, um, uh, counterweight with the archer's paradox when the arrow is flying and depending on the diameter of the shaft how big the, the fletch you can't take a shaft that say has a mary rose diameter quite quite thick um uh or even a hundred years war diameter war uh um and then apply tiny little turkish fletch to it the mm-hmm. arrow is going to randomly fly all over the place right that's a really so, good point yeah it's a, it's a matter of what's the arrow for? How far do you want it to go? What do you want it to do when it gets to the other end? So yeah, I fletched, uh, 
I, I've probably, Stephen's probably right. I'm probably into like five digits at this yeah. point. Arrow That's a really good point though, because, because like, <laughs> if you think about it, the end of the bow is only half the weapon, right? When you look at me and you, you say, well, what was this bow for? Is this a war bow? And I'd be like, well, show me the arrow. Yeah, yeah, you need to see. You yeah. really do, and then because it's 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 the combination of those two, and it's you know the the, the three part. What was your third part? I have an idea. Of it. it was us. Yeah, so oh, you have the, the archer. You have the archer, right? And you have so if you you put the bow and arrow together, then it's it's what's in the. But it's not just the archer. It's it's the it's what kind of archer? It's what's in it. Is he on a horse? Is he is he hunting? Yeah, are they is on he, the foot? Is he hunting? in a ship? All of the all of the different tasks. Like what was the bow used for? Affects affects how it was made. You know, it's. Mm. Because you, you, the shape and design is to optimize the intended use behind it, right? I mean, if we look at arrow finds from Crushy, uh, Hundred Years' War, there's various arrowhead finds there, and they're, the sockets on those are different. They're different sizes. I mean, I have a couple of uh, repros upstairs. I shot. I actually got to shoot a longbow at Crushy this year, standing where the archers stood. That was pretty phenomenal. <laughs> and I mean, some of those arrows are like this. And then some of them are really, really tiny. So, you know, you you got to kind of on an experimental archaeology level, those I would I would think that those very solid, very thick arrows are obviously being shot by fellas that are shooting 150, 200 pounds. The big, big, those are the big guns. And those arrows are stopping the big animal. They're stopping the horse. They're not They're that 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 arrow from that power a bow having shot it there at that trajectory and then gone to find that arrow and see how far down at the ground is buried that would blow somebody off their horse yeah. so you know those like, it, it, you know it's not uh, infeasible to think of something hitting with that much force like literally knocking you out of your stirrups or off right. your horse dangling by a stirrup i mean it was a the hundred years war battles were bloody and gross and awful same <laughs> same with the war of the roses you know just awful bloody gross but i do i do love the idea of of having to tax each house you know a few feathers mm. from each goose yeah exactly. because that means that when, you're you're French and you're standing, you're marching towards the the, the English, and then you just see a thousand arrows come down. Right. It's just all of the geese of England coming, <laughs> like every literally, Venus. literally every, Venus, yeah. like literally two right. fingers from every house in England coming right. down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, scary. when you that yeah, that's something to look at when you're looking at, at fletching and arrows. Like, what is that arrow going to be used for, and what bow is it paired with? I mean, you look at flight arrow bows from from Turkey, and they're really really tiny. They're not feasible to use for for warfare. You know, they're feasible to shoot arrows as far as you bloody well can and be a big macho man. That's, that's trick right. shot. Yeah, trick, trick shot. That's, <laughs> trick shot. Yeah. that's right. Uh, which this is the, uh, so I did want to ask this uh, question about the Gragas because there's this thing that comes up in the sagas occasionally. It shows up in Hrovenkill saga at one point uh, that bow shot uh, is a measurement of distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that's a like singularly useless measurement. Of, right. And so, yeah, that, that by the time it's actually written down, 13th century, it's being listed as a 200 fathmar, uh, or, uh, so it's about 1200 feet, mm-hmm. which seems, I mean, you know, to my ear sounds like an awful lot, cool. but, but, uh, well, currently right now, the, the record, I don't think anybody set the record at the conquest cup this year. Oh no, wait, the Hungarian lady, that was, she set a record for women at four, 300 and some odd meters. <laughs> yeah. The farthest now the archery world is full of people like fishermen mm-hmm. where the fish went from this to this. Right. So there have been, you know, they have been accounts of people saying, well, I shot a bow 800 and some odd meters. 
Um, we do have instances in Istanbul themselves. There are markers all over the city. Uh, and you go to the marker and it will tell you that so-and-so shot the bow from here to here. And they put up a marker <laughs> saying, look how far. Some of them are uh, 600 mm -hmm. meters. Mm. Um, flight archery or distance archery is something you find right across the board. So golf came from archery, basically, in the aspect of instead of trying to get a ball in a hole, um, you're trying to get the shaft in the middle of like a target painted on the ground. This is mm. ranging or clouch shooting um and again it has its it has its history in the martial arts mm -hmm. so yeah distant shots are you know mary rose i shot personally mm -hmm. uh when i shot at Crecy, i was over 200 meters and that was like with a 48 pound bow so if you want to think of that, so it's reasonable 48 yeah, but that's I, I, with a 48-pound bow with a person doing the correct sort of form and shooting style. And I can mm -hmm. tell you at, at 48, that bow was still sort of halfway pulling me off my feet. You can see the mm -hmm. video on the Epic Archer Facebook. Um, so with 100 or 120, like my friend Chris, he was shooting 100 and some odd composite and a longbow and uh, and a war bow. And, uh, yeah, he was easily blowing like 300 and some odd meters. So mm. at the Conquest Cup, which is a international, it is the largest traditional international and modern archery competition in the world that's held in Istanbul. Uh, I think the Hungarian fellow that got the record that or got the gold this year was like in excess of 400 meters. Uh, I've heard of people wow. shooting in excess of 600 meters. Mm -hmm. Well, what makes so, me wonder is that you know that's that's an 400 is enormous. Like when you say 400 meters, I'm, I'm that's a strong bow. Yeah, sure. it has to be strong, and it has to be a finely made arrow designed yeah. for yeah. that length. Definitely has to be an arrow. But what makes me wonder? What makes course. me wonder is is that this this idea of a bow's length. Mm -hmm. um, surely yeah. that would have to be an average one, that not an archery. Right. Well, it would have the bow too, right? itself would have to be an average. So how would you? Forty pound hunting bow. Mm -hmm. across the board and then you shoot that arrow and that's the that's the length because everyone's right. 40 pounds is your minimum you're going to want for hunting now if you're looking at what we have in iceland as far as the saga goes and the big animals that would have been there the only indigenous mammal to iceland is the wee little adorable little fox <laughs> uh some geese and at that time um you also would have had walrus so mm -hmm. that is a big animal with a ton of armor in the in, mm -hmm. in fat layers and blubber layers so you're definitely going to want something that's more than 40 pounds 40 pounds will drop an average ungulate so an average deer size an elk you maybe want something a little bit more but 40 will still drop uh, elk depending on how close you can get so mm -hmm. i'm going to guess the average bow we would have had at that time in the time of the sagas just saying as far as what hunting because they people didn't really go around shooting each other it's, it's rare instances where we have people hunting people with bows right. mostly with spears and sword and shield and stuff so between 40 and 50 pounds so i could see how the if you have a bow everybody sort of has a bow between that hunting weight then yeah that distance is going to be f within mm -hmm. a few meters of each other and i can mm -hmm. see how it how it would it would become a a, a, a sort of accepted measure of length right. and that's a, that's not the only place you find a archery used as an accepted measure of length uh, mm -hmm. saladin employed that during the third crusade with richard and you find it even further back uh the whistling arrows used by mm -hmm. asiatic composite cultures like how far oh. did that, uh, how far did those whistling arrows go signals all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. the mongolians also employed arrow distance as as a, a unit of measurement for marching or, or mm -hmm. for the horseback riding yeah. right and, and to how me to 
convince their enemies to come forward just just that right bit more, yeah. well now see it's funny you say that because it, it seems to me that the important thing for a confiscation court is that you'd want to be slightly more than an average bow shot's length away yeah. when you start that confiscation. absolutely because there's always an eye this person that's right yeah and you'd yeah. want to be outside of their shooting range not just exactly so you yeah. want to find that 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 range outside that outlaw's right. house, and then just be that couple extra hundred meters if you're right. an idiot right. and going to go after dinner. <laughs> kind of like the idea of firing several arrows and backing up each time until you figure out where the safe spot is. Yeah, well, that's what Sal yelling. that that's what Sal Al Hadin did. He he mm. had his archers shoot, and then he had it marked with colored rocks. So when the Crusaders advanced, then they had longbows, which were drying out left, right, and center in the mm-hmm. weather. And Sal al hadin had composite bows. And the English at the time were the, the Crusaders. Uh, they saw the markers. They saw the rocks. And they were like, there's no way. Because right. to them, the bow that they had couldn't shoot that far. But they had the, the, the Muslim side, Sal al hadin had composite bows, which can they drastically outshoot a longbow. A great amount of speed. Great yeah. amount of wow. speed. Yeah, Unreal. faster, much faster putting the arrow on and shooting than a long bow, um, a, a lot more range and a lot more mobility as, 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 a, as a movement, as a group, because the bows are drastically smaller. Mm. So, yeah, the Crusaders and their God wills it. They kind of God willed the wrong <laughs> for them. So. Now, I know you guys uh, probably get a lot of Robin Hood questions. Um, <laughs> so we're going to avoid Robin Hood for a minute. <laughs> and I want to know who's your favorite non-Robin archer. Um, Do you mean in fiction or like non-fiction favorite? Archer? I would go with yeah. either way, but I'm I'm actually more either interested way. in historical rather than fictional. Oh, historical. Okay, uh, historical. Uh, sure. That's good. Um, yeah. um, yeah. What's his name? Um, hang on, I gotta look up how to say his name because it's Finnish, and even though I am learning Finnish, um, I still can't quite say his name properly. Uh, where is he here? Yeah, are you? You're familiar with the Kalevala, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at mm-hmm. Go on. Is that a, is that a no or is that no? A that's yes? a yes. No, that's yeah. I'm, okay, I'm actually so you know, there's I'm the two... be running an independent study on the Kalevala in the spring. <laughs> oh, it's. I would love to come. And t- I'll bring my bow down. And I'll bring Marcus down. Oh, uh, lovely. I, I can't. I totally. He got. I, uh, I can't find it. It's it's Vinonane, and is I believe that's how mm. you pronounce it, or that's his name. And him and 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 the other fella that they're constantly arguing. The two of them. I can't believe I can't find it. My notes. I spent like writing down. Uh, they're constantly fighting, and and Yaunin he makes the bow, and in it he's gonna he's gonna uh, ambush the uh, the older fella, right? And he talks about the bow. Now, when it's translated into English, and again, this is an instant like that we started the the podcast off with. It's like where somebody doesn't know the archery terminology, so they translate it wrong, i.e., horny bow instead of horn bow. Mm. So he basically. He talks about the bow, and because uh, the fella, I can't remember, is the, the, the English guy that translated the Cabavala into English, um, uh, he applies the wrong words. He refers to the bow as a crossbow, first of all. Hmm. But really what he's singing about is like how awesome his bow is, and he's singing about a Finn Ugric bow. He's talking about how the the, the the back is birch bark and how it's got size of birch and it's so strong and it's going to knock Vinonane and down and all this kind of stuff. I really enjoy that verse because he's like, my bow is big and it's going to kick that guy's butt. Uh-huh. Like to me, I, you know, that right now he's on my, but he's a jerk. So I can't say he's my favorite. Archer. Okay. Um, I, I would say right now, my favorite archer is uh, what's your name from Wonder Woman? Oh, yeah. uh, Gal Gadot. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, let's not talk about Gal Gadot. Uh, <laughs> 
No, my favorite archer would be uh, would probably be Artemis, just because you know she's the sure. she's the goddess of the hunt, and mm-hmm. you don't often find women that hunt, uh, especially with with bows. And if they do, they don't. Most of them don't use uh, a traditional archery; they use uh, compound bows. So mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, right now she's kind of. I don't know. I mm-hmm. I, can, I love uh, I like Apollo. Oh. Yeah, I like. Apollo's cool because he's also a musician. He's also a bit of a rock star. You know, yes. he's, uh, <laughs> Weren't they well, brother and sister? I, I, I had this interesting conversation with someone once and they they, they said, isn't isn't music also the, the weapon that you can hit from afar? Oh. Right? Yeah. Because so love. Apollo yes, loves love. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, right. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. 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 I would, uh, I kind of... Yeah, as far as real archers go, uh, currently... Um, well, obviously, I know a lot of archery academics, so yeah. you know, I have my own heroes amongst them, but I won't True. name any because I don't want any egos. But uh, uh, Howard Hill, Howard Hill, because yeah. of because mm-hmm. of Robin Hood, because of the movie Robin Hood, and because of Howard Hill really established um, a lot to do with archery, not just in Hollywood, but in as a whole. If there hadn't been Howard Hill, there, there wouldn't be this... The, Howard Hill brought about sort of a resurgence of archery in his time. Mm. And I mean, there's fantastical stories of, of mm-hmm. Howard Hill shooting, you know, his friend, they were hunting in the Amazon and, a, and a, it was Anaconda got a hold of his friend and he told his buddy to push the head away, of course, which took all this effort. He had to inhale, mm. which means that the snake constricted more and he put the arrow through the eye. And even then they had to go and chop it up to get it to let go of the guy. So like Howard Hill is like the man's man, the adventures man, but, <laughs> If I was to choose a real a real archer, one number one, my hero uh, would be Mad Captain Mad Jack from World War II, the guy that went into battle with a claymore <laughs> yeah. and a longbow, and he actually holds like the last <laughs> um, militaristic kill with a longbow in a in 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 a war in a in a in a. In a I war. just imagine he shot, shot a Nazi guy. He snuck up on him, and he. I they just were, imagine yeah. like Germans in a trench on D-Day, and then just like turkey feathered arrows just appear right. and they're just like no, he was right. what is right. happening there's a picture of him uh on the beach running <laughs> up the beach with his sword what, and his long what is happening and his uh, company had to take a machine gun turret and he took out the sentry with his with longbow his wow. though they didn't they the guys in the turret didn't hear them coming so yeah. mad captain jack yeah i, I totally Wow, I, my my knowledge of history has just been expanded. I had no idea there were Nazis killed with arrows. Yeah, right? Yes, the last, and that's the last kill by a longbow in an, that's amazing. In, in a in a modern in modern yeah. war. Yeah. So cool. And it was like a hundred pound longbow too. This guy didn't mess around. He, I mean, he went oh, wow. to shore with like what a six foot fucking sword. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. God. So yeah, you can't choose. That. You can't ask an archer to choose that. We talked about movies that we didn't talk about. There's also a lot of lot of video games that portray archery in incorrect. Mm-hmm. Also, except for Tomb Raider, I think yeah, Tomb Raider is pretty good. Tomb, Tomb Raider, she doesn't, she doesn't do it in really well. no. In the current, <laughs> in the current, uh, I'm playing Horizon Zero Dawn, and that's got a lot of archery in it. And yeah. you can you can tell as an archer, you can tell when they've researched, and it's it's more so because in a movie you can kind of you can kind of in post you can trick something looking good. It's real quick, mm-hmm. and then if you no matter how many times you rewind and, and play back, it's not gonna it's not gonna change. You know how many frames captured the the yeah. the inaccuracy, right? But in right. a video game, it's a it's a three D world, and so if you do archery wrong, it's very very obvious over and over. <laughs> I hear um, about these things all the time from fans too. In the game, The Last mm. of Us, one of the one of the protagonists is a she's a fourteen year old girl, and she she ends up 
she ends up on her own and having to survive and she finds a bow in a, in, like in the apocalypse, you know? Yeah. And uh, there's this amazing scene where she, she holds the bow, she draws it at two guys who are trying to rob her. She's holding it just, just right. And it's, it's up at her, her fingers are up at her lip and it's a, it's a full draw and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a nice shot. Yeah. <laughs> but it, again, happens. again, the guys who made that game are, they're storytellers and they're the type of people who would definitely make sure not to miss not to mess not that to up. miss uh-huh. not to miss that opportunity to have somebody actually actually show actually show the because that game was actually um they used a technology whereby they they, they the actors actually it was a live action game so the, okay. the scenes are the scenes are, what is it called Mo- they're wearing like scuba yeah. diving scoot- yeah, scoot- yeah, scoot- oh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. so she, a- she actually drew a bow in that scene yeah. right and so that, when you draw a bow in the yeah. game it's actually it's actually modeled on an actual person much like tomb raider much like tomb raider remains. Much like there you tomb go raider. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Apollo and Ellie from The Last of Us. Got it. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> Ellie from The Last of Us. And myself in World of Warcraft. He's pretty cool too. <laughs> <laughs> so archery is presented often as a macho sport. I think you even mentioned earlier that it's a bit macho in uh, in English <laughs> specifically. Um, archery was something of a national identity in the Middle Ages as well. Um, and I'm thinking of things like the, the Pluck Buffett game, right, John, in the, uh, yeah. the guest of Robin Hood. What so uh, for, if, if people don't know, uh, I know you guys know, uh, uh, it's a game played in Robin Hood where a missed shot meant that your opponent could haul off and punch you in the face. Fuck yeah, cock Robin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we play this all the time. You oh, do. fantastic. Oh, my <laughs> Funny though, she never misses. Yeah. So I'm, I'm right. <laughs> I feel like one of those games where once you start to lose, you would keep losing. I don't know how well you can shoot. Well, yeah, I always aim for the eye, right? Aim, aim for right. the eye. They don't right. collapse. Well, after three punches, aiming. I'm bound to get better. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, what what other uh, rituals or cultural specific practices did historical arches engage in that we know of? Again, that's going to be hard because we don't have a lot of text. But no, it's uh, actually that's a that's actually a pretty easy question. Uh, um, um, the Turks uh, or or they would sh- shoot at something called the kabak, which is uh, if you imagine a very very tall pole was 40 40 feet uh, sometimes shorter sometimes higher uh and it would have a cabbage or a turban on the top and it's a matter of riding by on horseback and it's a special sort of you imagine the bows in my hand here here's my arrow it's a special sort of method of bending and shooting up and backwards okay. so again oh. it has its root in 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 the military and martial aspects. So that's one game. And of course, uh, we have a lot of modern sort of games, archery wise, mounted archery that are rooted in historical things. So uh, riding, trying to ride by a target, single shot, who can get the closest, uh, riding what we call the Polish track now, which is often a track of various different turns and corners with targets that you can shoot straight on on the side, shooting backwards as well, because that's something you do from the horses, shoot backwards. Uh, we have ranging and clout shooting like i explained so if you just think uh archery golf so instead of trying to get the hole uh the ball in the hole you're trying to get the arrow to the middle of a circle pointed in the grass um and then each each country's competition rules are all different as well and it's it's, historically it comes from their 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 military yeah it comes from military so Again, the the flight the flight archery is another one distance shooting um uh in India, they have quite a few. Also, other other games. Um, the, the Turkish sort of anything with the Asiatic, the Asiatic composite. They shared sort of similar uh, games styles. Um, 
yeah, uh, also shooting shooting at the cock, like throwing the throwing sure. a cloud or something mm-hmm. in the air, shooting moving targets, throwing things in the air and shooting. Um, all those are, are archery games. Uh, only in the last year. Shooting the wand. Only in know. the last year have I started to actually look at archery because I'm coming from a bow making. Sure. Yeah. Mm. And archery and bow making has started. That's why I started the blog was because I was traveling a lot and I, I wanted to. I sort of started using traditional archery as a way of looking at the modern world also. Mm. So last summer I was I got well, I got the, the honor of shooting with um, ex Gurkha soldiers in in the UK. I was in Surrey near where the the, the, the Gurkha training center is, um, and they shoot a style of archery that's actually Bhutanese. Um, their bows are made out of their self bows made from bamboo, and um, I think their target. How far is it's like it's about thirty to forty meters, but the actual target itself is is teensy, right? <laughs> and they're not even aiming. They're kind of they're holding it here and they're drawing it back to their to their to their armpit almost, and they're kind of bouncing the arrow out like this. And they've done it so they actually have like um, they've all these cuts and notches all over their bow. So they're not actually aiming; they're kind of trigonometry. They're they're matching almost like a mortar. Physics, yeah. Oh, jeez. Doing this, and they're going bang. And the sport isn't actually in the archery. The sport is in all the gambling that they're doing <laughs> in between. Because, because it's like it's like ten it's ten pounds in to play the game, mm-hmm. and then you count all of the bullseyes, and at that everybody gets like ten shots each, and anybody who gets a bullseye gets for every bullseye you get, you get two pounds extra off of everybody who's competing. So at the end of the night, everyone was so drunk. And one guy walked away with like 980 pounds oh my for, being the best, for being the best archer. Right. And it's so but crazy. The one. Yeah. They, and they love it. And they're all just like changing money behind them. There's gambling. And then they're, then they're like, uh, there's concentration is like a thing that that's off putting. So these mm. like scream insults at the archer as they're, so the guy is like going back and the guys are just like, ah, da, 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 with bells and they're screaming at him. Yeah. And then the arrow goes and everything's silent and it goes, and they go, ah, that was pretty good. <laughs> and then the, the old guys who can't shoot anymore and, and they're, they're watching and taking score and, and confirming whether or not it's a bullseye. Their face is like, they're 40 meters away. Their face is like almost touching the target. Mm. You're sitting like this, looking at the target oh. and there's arrows going. It's like, that in, it's like that in Mongolia during that. I don't care. And I come along and I'm just like, wow, there isn't an archery technician here to conduct safety. <laughs> You know? <laughs> they they do that uh, in Mongolia at Nadam. They do a similar festival where they actually have uh, Nadam is their their national festival. So they celebrate the three uh, sports of Mongolia: horseback riding, archery, and wrestling. Um, mm. And they shoot at these little cups. They're they're like literally. If you imagine this this sort of mug upside down, so you know they're like four inches tall, and and they're in a in a row, and the ones in the middle are. Uh, a red kind of color. So when you get down to the finals, the judges are all standing at these little cups stacked on top of each other. And they sing to the arrow. They tell the arrow, they throat sing, they tell the arrow, come and hit this red, but they're standing right there. Oh and then gosh. they do these, these hand signals like this, where they tell the score. Right. But they actually, they're st- it's kind of freaky. They're standing like, right there and these people are sh- i mean mind you the arrows have blunts on them but still that's another type of mm-hmm. you know it's a dis- it's a trajectory game a lot of uh, when you look at archery games throughout history a lot of them have to do with trajectory uh how much this how much this what are you going to hit how far especially when you look at something like uh, like ranging or cloud shooting where they're trying to get an arrow into a target that's painted mm-hmm. on the ground 
Um, and again, you found this uh, in Victorian times when archery started to pick up in popularity again, when the romanticism of the ancients started to, you know, experiencing another renaissance and the Victorian era, archaeology was becoming a thing. Oh, it was like, oh, jolly good. Let's uh, let's get out. We have no time. We have so much money. And gosh, we have no time. Let's get out some longbows and go shoot and be Robin Hood. And I got to tell you, some of the fashion that came out of that time is phenomenal. Yeah. So <laughs> archery, archery fashion is awesome. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah. my god. Can I just say um after listening to that I'm deeply jealous of your lives. I know, right? Uh, this, <laughs> this just sounds amazing. I mean, I thought being a professional jealous cool, of your beard and I'm jealous your, of your beard. I'll see yeah. your podcast. Yeah, I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Um I openly no, laugh at your podcast when I'll be, I'll be like on a train somewhere with my headphone earphones No, we're being serious academics. Like, yeah. It's all very smart. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, what are you listening to? Is that a comedy show? I'm like, um well, they're, yeah. they're professors, but they're American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no dignity whatsoever. No, none. <laughs> uh, I wanted to make sure we made time for this because uh, I want to talk to you about your school uh, because you've started this school for historical archery uh, and it's in Vancouver. Is that correct? Yeah, or Vancouver, Vancouver. British Columbia, uh, Canada. Commercial uh, Drive where it's all at. Yeah. Right. I, I took an archery course in community college in Queens. Uh, and this is many years ago. This is uh, so I'm in my mid 40s now, so it was 25 years ago. Uh, it was focused on learning to shoot a bow in the general direction of a target, uh, and that was really the extent of the instruction. And I caused no end of trouble by being a left-handed archer because they had no equipment archer for left. Yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. Left-handed uh, was, archers. Yeah. Right, and the it, the entire instruction about the weapon itself, I recall, was don't point it at anyone. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. So. Um, it sounds like rule. maybe things are a little more advanced at your school. <laughs> um, so uh, what might a student learn at Lycopus and why, why would a student sort of enroll at Lycopus? Uh, well, we sort of, we are the only school that's, that teaches what we teach as far as I know. Um, we, we start you off with a, a modern recurve, um, nothing fancy, mm-hmm. at a light draw weight. Uh, and we, we do have a lot of fellas come in and they want a oh, 40 pound low, 50 pound low. But we, uh, we employ, uh, the basis of Kyoto, which is Japanese, Japanese archery. So we employ that sort of Zen style of focus first form, form over how many arrows you're going to get in the target. First. The tar- yeah, the target's so not the target deep. is irrelevant. And we actually get people to the point who they want to shoot so many arrows. We take their pointy arrows away and we put rubber blunts on and make them shoot at the curtain because it's about form we teach it about form first so you start off as a beginner um beginner uh Mm -hmm. and and you learn the form and the shooting and you accumulate hours shooting and there's a certain part of uh there's a certain theory sort of academic uh, side to it a curriculum and then you can test to to become intermediate and uh, advanced and once you become an intermediate you start to decide what discipline you want to go into. And this is what sort of sets us aside from other archery schools is that when you go to another archery school anywhere, you're going to learn that type of archery that they're teaching. So it might be longbow, it might be long war bow, it might be Olympic, it might be Asiatic composite, whatever. Whereas we teach all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, once you reach intermediate, so like we have a couple of uh, ladies that are now in intermediate and they, they're studying Asiatic composite and they want to go into the mounted archery style. So, uh, onto the horseback. So, uh, I was in Poland this year, invited Stephen to join me. He did a mounted archery schooling where we learned their methods, uh, AMM archery in Poland. They're, they're 
Amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Pro- uh, pro- the first first day, it was the Phenomenal. course itself was what four days. On the first day, days, on yeah. the fourth day, I was is the, the my my the fourth day my only other time holding an Asiatic composite recoil was when, bow, was when I shot the thermostat off the wall. I never <laughs> on my first day, I did the same thing. I got a bullseye on my first arrow, but it was in the guy's target two targets from <laughs> mine. Right, so I was still drifting. Hey, but at least like you didn't that. shoot the instructor in the ass. After four days, I was shooting foam discs out of the air consecutively. Oh, wow. And he was on horseback shooting. You know, so, like, so it, it was a really good course. Part, um, of, part of what I do with my school is, um, and that's part of how I met Stephen as well, is is when I do travel, my travel is research on methods. So, like, this year I met with a fellow named Chris, unpronounceable last name uh, that's Dutch, uh, or Burgundian. Um, he taught me the war bow drop. And mm-hmm. how to properly draw a war bow without dislocating your shoulder or it's punching an awesome your skin. It's an awesome Yeah. Um, so he taught me the draw and I worked with him. I stayed with him for a week and, and I learned the draw as well as talking to other people online and going and meeting other people. So like my two, my two female students, they're learning now, uh, they're sitting on a yoga ball and they're learning the balance on how to draw the, the different ways of drawing the composite, how to hold all the arrows they're in their hands. They're holding four arrows in their hands in their at hands once. And, and knocking oh on and shooting. Yeah. So that's sort of what, when we, our four disciplines consist of, um, and, and each discipline has sort of its own subcategory. So uh, we have the longbow, uh, the Asiatic composite, uh, the American flatbow, which is indigenous to North America, um, and the lithic bow. So the Paleolithic or Mesolithic bow. So Etsy's bow and the Home Guard bow. And, um, and the it, integrated bow. into that style is to be able to make your own. To make. So that's sort of why I brought him yeah. in is because now Stephen can. So we within, also can do workshops um, and making them too. You know, so if you're in modern, wow. if you're in the beginner class, you're going to learn how to take like those arrows like I showed you earlier. And you're going to learn how to just basic do basic fletching how to mm-hmm. pick colors that you want and get them on the arrow and just like and then, why why fletch like there's, yeah, a, there's, why? A, there's form also included in like when you say that in archery it's like the first thing is not the target it's the form because when the form is perfect you don't have to think about it it'll just you'll hit the right bottom line it's is the same at making arrows and making bows is that if you if yeah. you have the method within you and it's correct and it's honed then you'll just be able to do it over and over and over so we, we try to teach you we don't teach people to aim which becomes frustrating for some folks. We don't teach you to aim because uh, we teach you to instinctively aim, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's part of the course. So even as you're learning modern archery, uh, when you're learning the, the modern recurve, you learn how to make modern arrows. You learn how to make a modern bowstring. And then say you guys decided you wanted to learn, obviously you would want to learn Viking archery. So in mm-hmm. if you once you were into your intermediate and your beginner, you would start to learn, you know, lo- those long bows probably would have been shot held at a cant, um, you learn how to make the bow with Mr. Fox here. Uh, you learn how to make the Flemish twist bow string. You learn how to make the Viking arrow based on the archaeological finds that we have. <clears throat> and it goes across the board. So if you want to learn war, war bow, say you're crazy and you want to learn to shoot like a 120-pound <laughs> bow, then you're going to learn how to make the 120-pound bow. Chris hopefully will be coming here in February to do what Stephen did and will be doing a demo and teaching classes. Uh, you learn how to make the arrows that go along with it, how to mix the, the hide glue, how to make rabbit hide glue and the vertigris and all that kind of stuff. If you go into the lithics, then you're going to learn how to flint nap and cut the crap out of your hands while you're trying to make some <laughs> arrowheads uh, and how to make those bows. And I mean, I've seen the Homoguard bow multiple times. I'm not ashamed to say every time I look at it, I start crying my eyes out. Because um, <laughs> I mean, it's 30 to 40,000 years old and it's next to a paddle. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to learn all this stuff. And, and 
you know, one of the things here we teach is the American flat bow, and that bow is 100%. That belongs to North America. Mm. Uh, it comes from our First Nations and our American Indians, and uh, it's a hunting bow through and through. Uh, and I was actually teaching an actress from a show I can't tell you anything about because that's a spoiler, but they have chosen to have this character shoot uh, shoot an American flat bow. Oh, cool. Perfect. And uh, I was demonstrating to her about it, and I was trying to show her uh, the stance that goes with it. Now, she won't be using that stance because it won't translate onto screen very well, but it's a special. You, each each bow has its own method of form of drawing, right? Mm. So it's not all the same. You can't, you don't, like I said, with Katniss, you know, it doesn't help to hunt Olympic style. Right. right? So, um, yeah, I was showing that I actually had uh, my partner was there. And the idea behind a flat bow is that you can shoot your intended target. So in this case, it was a foamy deer, uh, a.k.a. his name is Dinner. Um, and um, I literally, you're going to freak out. So Marina, my partner, was right here, and she was being a tree. She had her hands up like this, and I was behind her, and I shot the arrow right beside her face, like right here. <laughs> I just told her, I said, don't move. And I came right up, and I shot the deer, and you couldn't see me. From where where dinner was, you you couldn't yeah. see me. She was a, so that's you know that's uh, to me that's fascinating. If you're yeah. Asking, yeah. you know I mean that that kind of stuff, you're you're an invisible archer, and it's meant for hunting. So yeah, you'll learn how to make that stuff. Yeah. Too. And so when people want to join this class, uh, how do they find out about you guys? Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Lycopis Archery, L-Y-K-O-P-I-S Archery. Uh, or you can find us online at lycoposarchery.ca. You can contact us both through the webpage as well as Facebook. Uh, you can find out about me and my crazy some adventures that I do uh, um, on Instagram at epically, the epically archer, and on Facebook as the epic archer. He, you can find him at Archeofox, right? Yeah, archeofox.com. A R C H E O. It's the Irish or the English spelling. So A or C H A E O. A E O. That's how I spell it. I'll put links with the. I'll just put links with the uh, the episode as well. And we also do other things. Like I said, we also do film, and uh, I've consulted on uh, historical dramas as well. Not just um, not actually being on set, like doing it on the phone call and doing it over Mm -hmm. video stuff (laughs) like that. So. So you can teach us how to do Viking archery over the phone. I could probably teach you to do Viking archery, uh, or between Stephen and I, we could probably teach you to both of you to make a bow and arrows and do Viking archery <laughs> yeah. over Skype. Yeah. Really? I'll have okay. a YouTube video, well, yeah. yeah. You or we could just that. come to one of you. Just come. And we'll just come to you. I, I've never <laughs> been to Massachusetts. I've been to wow. 42 states. So one, Massachusetts. Oh, gosh. How'd you miss this one? Yeah. We only sailed as north as Maryland. Right. Well, we, we we're kind of tucked north. up in the corner there. Yeah, yeah. you're tucked up. Wait, you're almost yeah. Canada. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can get a whole bunch of states at once around us. You just drive around in a circle. Yeah, you just drive around in a circle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think I could happily hang out at your school and take every lesson you guys (laughs) offer and then, and then come home and play video games with you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, part of our, part of the house here that that Steven lives in now is, um, we call it sundry house because it's sinking. Um, But I have a. I it have actually a, is. If you get out of the bed too quickly, you fall, fall over. over yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I have a guest room. My guest room is uh, upstairs. It's where Stephen stayed when he stayed, and uh, it's covered in maps and stuff from all my travels, and it's where all the library is, all the archery books, and, and all the sagas and everything. Yeah. And, and we have an archery range in the back garden. Oh yeah, and there's an archery range in the back garden. We're building a 3D archery range forest so walk. You yeah. can do taking oh, the forest, you can shoot archery, the animals and yeah. archery tag. <laughs> 
Oh yes, and archery Basically. tag. We Building also it. we also do archery tag with our school, so you can book <laughs> with us, where you too can shoot your friends. Excellent. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic environment. Yes. I can't you think of a better place to end this. Right. <laughs> right. We didn't even get to t- touch on 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 fin bogey. Fin, fin oh yeah. Oh, I know. And the, the, how you pronounce it? Yes. We can always well, we can always fit something else back in there later on. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing that fascinating thing to me about later. Finn is is that he doesn't even have a bow. He's named right. after the bow. Exactly. Right. And yeah. to, that bow to me, like him, Finboya, is different from Han, Hanboya uh, because I firmly believe that the whole Finn or Finboya name is is in reference to the Finnish Ugric bow, mm-hmm. um, which is you know as far as when I I found about Finn Ugric archery because uh, I got stranded in, in uh, Budapest, which is not one of my favorite cities in, in Europe. Uh, and I, my flight was canceled and I booked another flight through Helsinki. And have you ever been to Helsinki? No, no, no. The airport is phenomenal. I was like, I don't want to leave this airport. I had a six, I had a, what I call a, a, a six beer layover. Um, so I started to look up like what kind of bow would they have in this country because it's bloody cold I mean it's not Mm. like Sweden where they have you know it's cold Finland is cold Uh, and like I said it took me a little bit uh, took me probably about four beer to find this Finn Ugric bow and then another two years to find Marcus so it's a it's not a bow that is that's a lot of beer that's a lot of beer Um, uh, sitting in an airport that's uh, you know it, it, it not a lot of people know about this bow and I just I really it's one of the things when I first started reading the sagas um when Finn Bo- Finn Bogey Finn Boya first showed up I was like mm. this dude is definitely named after this yeah. bow because I mean <laughs> only a Finn would be crazy enough to kill a bear the way he right. did like right. no Swede or Norwegian would do that <laughs> and of course the name is inherited right he he gains it yeah, from he inherits Kai, it. Uh, comes in who might very well be trained in in Finnish bow yeah, uh, I think uh, have your Icelander who ends up inheriting the name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super powerful, awesome two wood bow. Whereas then you have, you know, you have uh, Hunboya. You have that name of Hunboya, Hun Hun uh, Hunbogi, and you have uh, uh, what's his face there and Tor Torstein's sons. They they use a, a, a Hunbow. I think it's someone else shoots shoots his brother with a Finbow. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which saga that is. He shoots him by accident. And dad is all upset because he can't take revenge on his son. That sounds like Beowulf. <laughs> yes. Beowulf, yes, yeah. you're right. It is Beowulf. Sorry. The other, the other. Yeah. Yeah. He shoots him with his son and he's all pissed off. But again, mm-hmm. he uses a, a the Hun bow. So um, I, I really believe that the, obviously the Viking, we have, a, we have evidence of Vikings being in Constantinople. So of course they would have course, access sure. to, to this composite bow. Now, whether it would work in that weather, I don't know. Um, composite bows don't hold up very well to moisture or, or rapid changes of temperature. So, mm. but I, yeah, I, I don't think that the Vikings just solely use the longbow. And I, that's something that interested me about Vikings and led me to, to Stephen in a way was that this here was a culture that had, obviously they use longbows. We have archeological evidence to that, but we also have name evidence to show that they had access to these other bows. Right. Whereas we don't mm-hmm. have that with anybody else. You don't hear Turks talking about longbows. You know, you, you, the only time you ever hear English or uh, Western Europeans talking about Asiatic composites is in the, the, the face of them being terrified of them. So, And it's because know. Vikings have that capacity for travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I and think then, in Iceland especially you see, you know, this culture that almost has to become kind of a magpie culture because they just have yeah, to find absolutely. what works for where they are. 
And so they end up taking bits and pieces of everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're like the Romans in that way. They just didn't mm-hmm. exploit it quite as much as the Romans right. did. <laughs> the Viking Empire never yeah, was. The Viking Empire that, that was and never was. Right. Yeah. Well, it's because one of the reasons for that is because they adapted so well. When they settled mm-hmm. in these places, they adapted mm-hmm. to the cultures that they were in so so readily. So we don't have that. Well, we have um, – there is artwork um, – I believe it's 16th century, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Depicting Rus Vikings uh, with coitus, with uh, bow quivers, bows and bow quivers, uh, composite bows. Yeah. Um, we, there is artwork uh, outside of Moscow and, and various other places in Russia that, that depict uh, saints or warriors with with uh, with the bow and the bow quiver. Like that's the, that's fairly early for quivers, right? I mean, it's it's a bow quiver, so it's it's called a coitus. It's something that yeah. actually it, it holds the bow itself. Oh, oh, so, I see. Yeah, you, I don't know if you can. No, you can't really. He's kind of wearing it right, right there. He's it's oh, where yeah. the bow goes. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> That's for archery. That's both of those are there for teaching archery. So, nice. um, but yeah, it's a. I'm just showing off her tattoos right now for those who yeah, aren't uh, enjoying um, visuals. No, bow bow quivers go way back. Bow quivers, uh, bow quivers can be found uh, all the way back to um, pretty much when the Romans invaded and conquered what is now Syria and uh, Iran and Iraq and oh. Greece. Greece, Greeks also had composite bows. So, mm-hmm. like, definitely, uh, uh, it's that, what's it's, his name? Odysseus had a composite bow. Particularly in, in these types of bows, when you unstring them, they they don't look like bows anymore. They can go backwards and around yeah, they go into really? a circle. So, so when they pop them in a bag, it could it could easily be mistaken for a, an, ordinary, oh. an ordinary side patch, but a wooden object. But on, on object. mounted archery, yeah, a wooden object in mounted archery, you generally find people will sometimes they'll have two bows, so they'll have one on them physically in their hand or over their shoulders, and then they'll have another one in their goitas. So the there's a little bit of a conjecture right unless now. The bow, say, unless the bag is empty. Unless the bag is empty, but one is more powerful than the other is, mm. is, is the idea, yeah, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we have artwork dating quite far back depicting mm. those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we have artwork, of course, depicting Amazons um, with Asiatic composites. And the graves, the Burka graves have Asiatic composites in them. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, I think the Vikings are cool that way. They were kind of like, Audrey, all over. Let's shoot it right. all. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, uh, one last one last question. Mm. What is your favorite saga? <laughs> is that fair? <laughs> Can one have a favorite mm. saga? I, I like Nal's saga just obviously because of Gunnar. And and mm. I I have to admit, I don't often read the whole thing past Gunnar. Death. I think uh, it gets Gunnar kind of depressing has, after like, that. The whole, it gets it is kind of it is. It gets really depressing after that. The, I love the line of like, "Is Gunnar home?" No, but his glaive is. <laughs> like, it just cracks me up. Um, they have a T-shirt uh, depicting that as a cartoon that I'm very proud oh, of. Oh, I would love that T-shirt. Um, I think the. Uh, I have to say Beowulf because I know it's it's <laughs> it's uh it's not a saga, but uh, it's because Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but Tolkien That's also right. took a lot of his influence from the Icelandic sagas. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of like Bandamana saga. I know it's mm, not. Really? Is that because the you know, Bandamana saga? First of all, it's so much because fun of to how say. you would say when you When I first listened to it, I was mowing the lawn and I was laughing my ass off the whole time because he's not like Because just the way you were like, Bandamana saga. <laughs> it's so much fun to say. the best word. I know. Um, <laughs> I kind of like that saga because of 
there's a lot of one-liners that are oh, yeah. super the insults are great. witty. And I, in part of the, I guess part of the, I love the use of Kennings and the sagas and that kind of stuff. And Pandamana Saga is, yeah, it's like, I don't know if I should say, it's kind of the drag show of sagas. It's full of witty, <laughs> yeah. catty one-liners <laughs> rubbing your thighs together. We yes. all know what you're doing. We, we, everyone in this room knows exactly what's happening. Sit down. Right. Like, um, well, if you like those no, insults, you're going to enjoy uh, one of the Thatcher that we'll do soon for yeah, the Saga Ailhood, Shorts. Yeah. There's, there's one that's pretty um, much like Bandamana Saga. Is uh, it? With, with I, the insults. I, I don't know. I really like, I know that Bandamana Saga is kind of, it's more, it's like probably totally fiction. Um, I mean, it's almost a send up of the, of the entire it, genre. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, but it's a fun one. Kind of like, um, um, hang on. I'm, I'm checking my notes here. Yeah. Not those notes. Um, No, I think that's about because on on is not really he's a family saga, right? Like you guys haven't covered him, have you? On no, he's a, yeah he he technically falls under the uh, the Fernaldo saga, the, uh, right. the fantasy sagas. He's the fantasy sagas, yeah. Yeah, um, he's fun though. It's Irbrigas saga that, that I don't know if I said that right or not, but. Uh, uh, we don't know if we say anything was, right either. So. Yeah, I know. Uh, we just that's say it, where it's uh, Torbrander's sons that shoot. They they shoot somebody. I can't remember. I remember reading that one. That was a long time ago. Um, I don't know. My favorite. Yeah, I, I guess the Bandamana saga would be my favorite saga. Yeah, yeah. I think. And I and I like the saga of Finn because he's Icelandic, but he just acts like a Finn. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever connects. met Finns, but they have like the weirdest sense of humor ever. Yeah. They're the most selfless, kind, non-egotistical, evil-humored people you will ever meet. <laughs> Come on, they have a word for going home and drinking in your underpants. It's the perfect hope. That's great. <laughs> Can you share that word with us? I, I can't even. I'm not even going to attempt to say that word. There's very few words. Like I know Finnish. I could teach archery in Finnish, um, but uh, that's uh, that's one. No. Um, I love the Finnish language and I would love to learn it better than what I know it uh, right now. But Turkish and Finnish are the two languages that I've been learning and mm. uh, they apparently have a common ancestor. So, um, but yeah, I, yeah, I would say the Bandamana saga and the saga Finn, Finn movie, although the Laxadela saga is pretty good. Yeah. You know, it's all sad and romantic. So maybe that's why I don't <laughs> The whole romantic sagas are not really my thing. So. And Stephen, I, I like your answer of Beowulf. I think it's uh, not technically a family you song would. or anything, but I, I see yeah. how he, I see what you're saying. I knew there. what you were doing there. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> it works Anytime I can segue into Tolkien, right. pleasure. <laughs> Playing it up to Franger. Play up to Franger. There you go. Yes. All right. Well, Patricia and Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your uh, knowledge and your wisdom with us and your sense of humor as well. It was no a pleasure. Problem. Thanks Thank for you. having us. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah thanks yeah. for having us. Thank you for bringing me a, a good saga podcast. You travel, you, like I said, you and Matt Smith. <laughs> You've traveled you guys, everywhere with me. You've traveled everywhere with me. You have. Uh, I was listening to you during the competition in Istanbul last year. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so, I think yeah. you're kind of there. Um, but... I, uh, you guys go everywhere. You've almost made me miss airplanes and trains <laughs> because I've been falling asleep. And uh, it was Austria this year in Vienna. I was listening to you guys and uh, – <laughs> Oh, I literally sorry, my I was sitting right in front of my train, and and I was like, "Oh wait, that train is moving." I, I need to be on that. So. Well, I'm glad we can entertain you, and thank you for entertaining thank us. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thanks it. Again. Have a great Thanks, day. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Oh, love,
Fyrir sér alvaran Það er rauður loginn 